Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I am delighted to talk to Dr. Hatem Al-Hajj. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you, Paul, for inviting me. Assalamu alaikum to you. Alaikum assalam. Dr. Hatem was born in Cairo, Egypt, and currently lives in the United States. He has traditional ijazas from a number of scholars and a PhD in comparative fiqh from Al-Jinan University. He's also a qualified paediatrician. Um, Dr. Hatem is a member of the Assembly of Muslim Jurists in America and of the Permanent Fatwa Committee and is the author of a number of books, which I won't list now. There are so many of them and articles as well. Dr. Hatem has kindly agreed to introduce us to the theology of one of the most controversial Islamic figures and thinkers, Ibn Taymiyyah. I think we are in great need of an accurate and clear presentation of his thought, not only because of his intrinsic interest, and I think he's a fascinating figure, but because a better understanding of Ibn Taymiyyah can help ease the tensions that sadly exist between various groups in the Muslim world. So over to you, sir. Thank you very much, Brother Paul, for inviting me. Um, I'll try to do my best, inshallah. This may be a, a long presentation, uh, but uh, I'll try to do my best uh, in presenting uh, Taymian theology, and I, I will explain shortly mm. why I may call it Taymian theology, even though it is uh, basically uh, Athari scriptural uh, or scripturalist uh, theology. Um, so I may start with the presentation now. <clears throat> um, and uh, this is this is basically an outline of this presentation. Um, so today we will uh, try to talk about uh, his life. Um, we will introduce a short bio of him because it, I think to put things in context, uh, it would be important to uh, have a better understanding of the person himself uh, mm. behind the theology. Um, and then we will uh, have a brief discussion of the, uh, on the pillars of faith Islamic pillars of faith, just the bird's eye view on the pillars of faith in Islam. And then we will address the more controversial uh, pillars, which would be the divine attributes, or the more controversial pillars would be God and uh, predestination. Uh, and when it comes to the belief in God, between us Muslims, uh, there is no dispute uh, concerning the, the oneness of God, the unity of God. Uh, the, the disputes uh, are mainly concerning his attributes and how we, how we describe him. And then we will talk about the Taymiyyah project. Um, and uh, as I said, the, the, the two points of contention here would be Qadr or predestination and the divine attributes. 
Uh, we'll talk about the Tamir project and we'll talk about his uh, theology uh, uh, with regard to Qadr or predestination and the divine attributes. But in order for us to do this effectively, we will need to talk about his epistemology, his ontology, his mm -hmm. hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. um, and these are all important discussions. Uh, and then we will talk about how he answered uh, certain concerns of speculative theology, which are, are not uh, all invalid concerns. Speculative th theology uh, has certain valid concerns uh, w uh, about the divine attributes and how we describe God. And we will talk about how he answered those concerns. Um, and, the, 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 you know, um, the last part when, you know, regarding his project is uh, basically some eccentricities. And I use this not in a pejorative sense, uh, but uh, when you have a, a, a when when you uphold a minority position uh, that is a very small minority position, it would be naturally called eccentric because it's away from the center or the mainstream or uh, the bulk of uh, Muslim scholarship or momentum. Um, and then I, I will talk about uh, accusations as well, uh, because uh, that would be important to clarify. And then there will be a summary at the end, and where do we go from here? Good stuff. Very good. Uh, yeah. Um, so if, if I may start with the introduction, uh, first of all, as I said before, uh, Taimian theology is um, is objectionable. You know, the very uh, sort of title of this presentation is objectionable. Mm -hmm. uh, and this the objection will come from the side of uh, the followers of Imam Taimiyah and the sympathizers with Imam Ibn Taimiyah, uh, because it, uh, it seems that I'm given in to the notion uh, that uh, his theology was different from... Uh, sort of Sunni Athari uh, theology or scripturalist uh, theology. And I'm not saying that. Uh, I think that his uh, theology is uh, Sunni Athari in nature, uh, for mm -hmm. sure. Uh, but it does distinguish itself uh, through the combination of his choices. And I mean by this that within the schools, within the different schools, and within the, uh, you know, the Sunni schools, which would be the Athari and the Mutakallimun, rationalist theologians, and that uh, particular school would be further divided into Ash'aris and Maturidis. Uh, but within these schools, there is no uh, complete uniformity within any of those schools, just like mm -hmm. you have in the legal schools, uh, the four Mazahab, the four legal schools, you, you have uh, disagreements within the schools, uh, you have uh, a greater amount of disagreements um, and more substantial disagreements within uh, the, the Sunni schools. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so the combination of your choices distinguishes your, your theology. Uh, also, his methodology was a little bit different, and we will talk about this uh, shortly. Um, so his methodology does characterize his uh, theology because it's 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 different. It's not uh, purely scripturalist, and it is pu not purely rationalist. He tried to uh, basically merge the, the two methodologies together: the rationalist and scripturalist. 
Um, and finally, um, rare eccentricities would uh, characterize um, a person's contribution to any field of knowledge. Mm. Um, so my purpose of the presentation, and I, I, I want to be uh, clear and candid about this, I, I am trying to accurately present and clarify Taimian theology as a Hanbali with Taimian inclination. And I, I wa want to say this candidly, because this is not um, basically uh, completely impartial. Uh, and uh, although I try as much as I can to be objective, um, and this is what we all need to do, uh, I mean, regardless of our own convictions, I think it is uh, very possible for people who have firm convictions to be also objective. And there is always that, that question, even, you know, philosophers would not consider um, uh, religious people who have firm beliefs uh, to to uh, to be able of uh, engaging in philosophy uh, because they think that since you have firm beliefs, uh, you have to come to philosophy without your beliefs. Uh, and and I don't think that this is necessarily true. Yeah. I think that people can have firm convictions and still be objective and factual. Um, so that's what I will attempt to do here. So why is it important to talk about Thamian theology? And you may have alluded to it in the introduction, Brother Paul, uh, because even his opponents recognize the importance of parts of his legacy. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's not only his followers, uh, but, but also uh, many of his uh, uh, sort of more uh, fair opponents uh, I guess, uh, do recognize uh, the importance of parts of his legacy when it comes to uh, uh, fiqh in particular. I mean, if, if people who will not uh, subscribe to his theology, uh, they still benefit greatly, and many of them do acknowledge that they uh, benefit greatly from his jurisprudence, uh, from his contribution to Islamic law. Yeah. Uh, from his contribution, you know, some of them also said that they uh, benefited. And I, I do remember hearing uh, the former Mufti of Egypt, Dr. Ali Jama, so, who uh, said that people may benefit from his tasawwuf or from his Sufism or from his uh, uh, basically uh, discussions on uh, Islamic uh, purification, uh, mm. spirituality, purification of the heart, spirituality. Uh, some people would like to call this Tazkiyah, and some people like to call it Sufism. But anyway, he used his own uh, preferred term, Sufism, and he said that you could benefit from his writings on, mm -hmm. on Sufism and his writings on Islamic law. Um, uh, another reason why it, it is, is also important is what, what you have, you've mentioned in the beginning, that um, Imam Taymiyyah, uh, um, may Allah bestow mercy on him, uh, a better understanding of his legacy can uh, greatly <clears throat> ease the tensions that exist between various uh, segments of our Muslim community, uh, mm -hmm. because we have people that subscribe to his theology and his legal thought um, and his thought on uh, purification of the heart or uh, spirituality, and we we have people that 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 would basically accept uh, his contributions in some of those areas. And we have people that completely reject 
all of his contributions and uh, exhibit a great deal of animosity towards mm -hmm. the person. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that certainly uh, is causing tensions. Uh, and we do want uh, to ease those tensions. That's one of our objectives. Uh, so I, 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 I say here on the uh, slide, if you are a Shari, and I just <laughs> wanted to begin by saying uh, that uh, if, if you're a Shari and you listen to this presentation, please do not feel uncomfortable. Please do not feel that your beliefs are being targeted. It is natural that people who have uh, different beliefs would, uh, would basically uh, present their own uh, set of beliefs and, and defend them. Um, the, the fact that the, the chief interlocutor of Imam Ibn Taymiyyah uh, where the later Ashari scholars, particularly Imam Razi, and I will explain later in this talk why I call both of them Imams, even though I uh, may subscribe to Taymiyyah theology. Um, uh, but uh, but anyway, it it, uh, it is it is natural that you feel that you're being targeted uh, because the discussion of one set of beliefs is is basically considered to, and sometimes right, rightfully so, uh, to be a refutation of another set of beliefs that, that uh, uh, basically contradict them. Uh, but let's, let's all remember that the basic beliefs in Islam, we agree on the basic beliefs in Islam that we will talk about shortly, inshallah, in this discussion. Can I can I just say, if I may pop in there, um, I appreciate a lot your your irenic uh, spirit here, the, your, your the way you're looking to um, you know build bridges and not and too often uh, in my limited experience, uh, people who call themselves uh, followers or admirers of Ibn Tamir can be much more sectarian and rejectionist towards those who. Uh, don't agree with them, uh, and and that is reciprocated, of course, by others who then attack Ibn Taymiyyah uh, people. Uh, people appreciate Ibn Taymiyyah, so you get this kind of sectarian tensions. And so your approach, uh, as someone who clearly sympathises or agrees with Ibn Taymiyyah, is is a refreshing uh, approach and and much to be welcomed in, in my view, anyway. Uh, alhamdulillah. Uh, thank you. Um, so I just wanted to say that uh, you know. Uh, why, why am I saying do not feel uncomfortable? Because most of our basic beliefs are the same, uh, mm. as, as I will discuss. Uh, secondly, uh, this particular speaker uh, has many uh, Ashari uh, scholars uh, that he respects and loves uh, and that he benefited from greatly. Yeah. And uh, I may say that if I were to be asked by any of them to wash their feet, I would not hesitate. Uh, I will also speak later about Imam Taymiyyah's uh, treatment of the Ashari scholars of his time. Mm. Um, uh, but, but this will be uh, later in, in the presentation. Uh, okay. So please don't feel that targeted in any way. Mm. Um, this is a brotherly uh, sort of discussion. Um, and then I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to uh, forgive us all. Um, I uh, ask Allah to send his uh, peace and blessings onto the Prophet, peace be upon him, who conveyed this message to us. And uh, I uh, pray. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. As uh, praise is due to him. And I ask him to forgive us because we may be speaking about him in a way that is uh, not most suitable. Uh, sometimes we, when we get into these th- disagree- disagreements, uh, we may uh, use uh, language that God did not speak about himself uh, with using that language, uh, did not, uh, you know, use the, that language to describe himself. And if, if we will have to do to clarify our positions, since this agreement did already take place and since there is already controversy, uh, and since uh, this language has been introduced uh, into uh, the, the basically the doctrines, uh, the Islamic doctrines uh, and the Islamic creed, uh, then we may have to use this language uh, to have a conversation, to have a common ground, and to be able to converse uh, with the with our interlocutors. Uh, but we do ask his forgiveness because that language may be uh, suboptimal, and it is not what he preferred to use uh, to describe himself. Mm, okay. Uh, so a short bio uh, or um, short introduction of uh, the life of Imam Taymiyyah, which was very multifaceted, so we will not be able to do it justice. Um, he spent his entire life in learning, preaching, teaching, uh, activism, jihad, uh, uh, worship, uh, devotion, uh, and sometimes the prison as well. Uh, so uh, he led a very austere and uh, celibate life. N- not to say that celibacy is uh, uh recommended in Islam, not to say that uh, people who uh, lead celibate lives uh, have uh, are better, um, because uh, no, they, the Prophet ﷺ is the best uh, f- model, uh, and he uh, was married, and he was not, uh, he did not lead a celibate life, uh, nor did his uh, greatest companions. But uh, it's, it seems that some of the scholars were too busy, and they basically could not handle being married, and one of them was Imam Taymiyyah, and he lived a celibate, austere life that was completely dedicated to uh, to the, the the cause of God and worship, uh, learning, preaching, teaching, activism, uh, and jihad. So I will not talk about, you know, all the details of his life, but uh, just like an outline and uh, talk about the distinction of Imam Taymiyyah and uh, religious sciences, uh, what people call transmitted sciences and the rational sciences. Uh, Because it is important since we're discussing his theology and he uh, came, he was born in the seventh century why would someone uh, from the seventh century uh, basically get himself involved in these matters, uh, serious matters? Um, so we will talk about his uh, distinction in, in both fields. Uh, but first, when did he live? He lived uh, between the seventh and eighth uh, centuries after the Hijra 
of the Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, that would be uh, 13th and 14th, between 13th and 14th century of the Common Era. Mm. Um, and I have the dates here, both in Hijri and uh, Gregorian calendar. Um, so uh, I, I heard Professor Hoover uh, making uh, sort of a uh, some remark about the, the, the fact that Imam Taymiyyah lived right in the middle between, you know, if you look at the outline from the birth of, or birth of Islam, or, you know, the, the Hijra of the Prophet ﷺ, or the ministry of the Prophet ﷺ, which started 13 years before his Hijra, to our time, he would have been in the middle of, of, that, of that period, and uh, to, to him it was interesting. Uh, but it is, it is uh, to us a great degree uh, interesting and, and it may be relevant to some of the discussions that we will have uh, later. So if you look at this outline, you'll find that the Hijra of the Prophet ﷺ, this happened in the first year, first Hijri year. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then uh, 120 is the beginning of the period of the four Imams. Of course, Imam of Imam Hanifa was born in 80, 80 after Hijra, 80 after Hijra. Uh, but he started to, to be prominent and to contribute to the, the, you know, the Islamic scholarship in great ways when he was about 40 years of age. So the year 120 after Hijra is the beginning of that period of the four Imams. And Imam Malik was born about 13 years later, um, so the year 93 after Hijra. Uh, so both Imam Hanifa and Imam Malik, they started to become prominent around this time. And by 241, 241 is the year Imam Ahmad uh, uh, was, uh, Imam Ahmad died in, in 241 after Hijra. So that ended the period of the four Imams. And uh, 247, that's a few years after Imam Ahmad died, this was the end of the first uh, Abbasi uh, dynasty, Abbasid dynasty or Abbasi dynasty. This is, this is the end of the first Abbasi dynasty. That's the, uh, the, the, the first dynasty is the powerful dynasty, the prosperous dynasty. And then the authority of the Abbasi Khalifas uh, was no more uh, like it was before, and uh, there were basically it, it, it was fractured, fragmented uh, after the first uh, the, the, after the end of the, the first dynasty. Uh, by the year uh, for, uh, or in the year four hundred and fifty after Hijra, Imam Al Ghazali was born. And why is it uh, relevant? Uh, because uh, people nowadays are either Ghazali or Tamian, but. Uh, yeah. Uh, but why is it relevant? Because in that uh, second half of the fifth century, uh, and particularly, you know, at the end of the, of the fifth century, uh, the tide started to turn in favor of Kalam theology uh, versus Athari theology or scripturalist theology. So Kalam theology would be a rationalist theology and scriptural theology would be the Athari theology, and the tide started to clearly turn in favor of Kalam theology. And by the sixth and seventh centuries, um, it they they were the, 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 the decisive majority. So by the time Imam Taymiyyah came to the scene, they were the decisive uh, majority. So in the year four hundred and eighty-eight, 
after Hijra, that was the beginning of the Crusades. Um, the year 616, uh, the beginning of the Mongol invasions of Muslim territories. Uh, the year 656 is the fall of Baghdad, which is significant because Imam Taymiyyah was born um, about five years after the fall of Baghdad. He was born in 661 after Hijra. Um, that was still in the midst of the uh, Mongol conquests of the Muslim territories. And, uh, and he actually had to flee his, his hometown uh, when he was six or seven years old. Uh, because of the Mongol invasion of his own town. Uh, and he died in the year 728 after Hijra, uh, which corresponds with 1328 of the Common Era. Um, then, you know, uh, significant uh, events that happened in, in our history after that is the French invasion of, uh, of Egypt. And certainly we will not talk about why this is particularly significant, but people who are familiar with the history of uh, Muslim countries, they can recognize why the French invasion of Egypt was uh, pretty significant. Mm. Um, and then the end of the Ottoman Empire, uh, or Ottoman Khilafah Caliphate, was 1342. Mm. Uh, and uh, we have the present now. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so this is a, a, a quick outline of the life of Imam Taymiyyah. So as we said, he was born in 661, after Hijra, uh, that corresponds with 1263 of the Common Era, and he was born in Harran. Um, it's currently it is you know in modern Turk modern modern day Turkey, but uh, uh, it used to be like part of Mesopotamia. Um, and uh, at about six years of age, uh, 667, he was taken to Damascus as a refugee from uh, the Mongol invasion. Um, his father took him, uh, and uh, the, the whole family moved to Damascus. And uh, ever since, they they lived in Damascus and they set, just settled in Damascus. So he is a Damascene scholar uh, to a great extent. Uh, and uh, shortly after he arrived in Damascus, he became very famous <laughs> as as a boy, as a child. Uh, people started to talk about his intelligence and uh, his uh, great uh, talents and capacities that a, uh, uh, a scholar from Aleppo, which is about f four hours away by car from Damascus or more, uh, came to, to see him. Uh, and, and he said that if this boy lives, uh, he, will, uh, he will be uh, very prominent and uh, uh, the like of him has not been seen before, something like this. Wow. Um, and so in in uh, 678, he was 17 years old, and he was given permission to issue fatwas. And, and that certainly was, was a great thing. For, at, se at 17 years old, I mean, you know, you, you, usually you're in your 40s or older before give, issuing fatwas, but 17, I mean, that speaks to his exceptional abilities and, and learning uh, and maturity at such a young age. Correct, particularly given the, the, the conditions in Damascus at that time, there were great, great, uh, to, like so many great scholars in Damascus at mm. that time. Uh, so it was not like uh, basically lack of resources and we're yeah. trying to look for somebody. 
Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then at 683, he was uh, 21 years of age, and he replaced his father, his father uh, who, who had just died, as the dean of Dar al-Hadith al-Sukkariya, which is a school. Uh, and 692, he made Hajj. Uh, 693, uh, that was his first encounter, like rough encounter with uh, authorities. Uh, he was imprisoned for protesting when a Christian close to the authorities cursed the Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, and he, uh, he and uh, other uh, scholars, but uh, he was, you know, most prominent among them, went and protested. Uh, and then he wrote his book, The Unsheathed, the Unsheathed Sword, oh, yes. against, against the one who cursed the prophet. Yes. So I've just, I've, I've got a copy of behind me. I won't, I won't wait it out because obviously, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then in the year 698, he was accused of anthropomorphism. And, uh, mm. and that was when he wrote... Uh, a short treatise on Aqidah called the Hamawiyya. Um, 699, between 699 and 702, he was busy in jihad all the time. He led a resistance movement uh, during the Mongol invasion of uh, the Levant. Um, and uh, 699, uh, his famous confrontation with uh, the, the chief of the Mongols, uh, Ghazan is Ghazan, I guess is his uh, name, and the rest of the Mongol chiefs. And uh, he, uh, during that episode, is when he asked for the captives to be released. And when he released the, all the captives, all the Muslim captives uh, for him, he said, We will not leave here until you release the Christian uh, and the Jewish captives as well, because uh, we will not leave without taking all of our Ahl al Millah, the people of our religion, and Ahl al the people of our covenant. And this shows extraordinary courage uh, on the part of Ibn Taymiyyah because he, he risked his life basically in, in, in confronting and questioning um, the decision of, of, of a you know an invader, um, of the Mughal invader. So it shows he wasn't just a great scholar, but he had a man of huge valor as well and defending Christians as well as Muslims who had been unjustly imprisoned. So it's remarkable. Yeah, and, and that particular figure, that particular Mongol chief was known to be extremely cruel and brutal. Um, so all the scholars that went with uh, Imam Taymiyyah, they, they uh, basically rebuked him for uh, risking their life. Did he succeed, by the way? I mean, he in did, his he did. No, actually, he did. The, and, okay. yeah, he did. And he took all the captives back to and then uh, 699 also he fought in the Kisrawan campaigns. Uh, these, the Kisrawan campaigns were uh, campaigns uh, led by uh, the Mamluk uh, Sultan against uh, some, uh, uh, some Shia in the, uh, in the uh, sort of the mountains of Kisrawan uh, that uh, basically colluded with uh, invaders. Uh, at least according to the uh, Sunni narratives, uh, they colluded mm -hmm. with uh, invaders and, and helped them. So the Sultan uh, went to, um, and, and, and certainly among them are the assassins. They're, they're known. Um, in Arabic, they would be al-Hashashin. Uh, translation in English, they are the assassins. That's where the word assassination came from, uh, because they used to target uh, and assassinate 
um, uh, major Sunni figures, um, and, and and many many Sunni figures, uh, including sultans and, and so on, were uh, killed by them. Uh, so in the year 702, uh, he participated in the Battle of Shakhab, um, and the Battle of Shakhab is, is a very well-known battle, um, maybe the second most significant battle after Ain Jalut, um, and uh, they they won uh, during this, the, you know, they won against the Mongol invaders uh, in the Battle of uh, Shakhab, and uh, when he fought, he did not fight as a footman, he fought as, he fought as a horseman. Uh, and he, you know, they, they describe, they talk about his bravery and courage during the, in the battlefield and so on, but that's a different discussion. 705, he was imprisoned in the citadel of Cairo for uh, 18 months for anthropomorphism as well, and for speaking against some uh, Sufi monists. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, uh, you know, contemporary and in, in, in a sense, but uh, they were not alive in, in, in his time. Um, and uh, then, in uh, and that that imprisonment in the citadel in, in Cairo, uh, most of it he spent in the dungeon, uh, which we'll talk about uh, closer to the end of the slide uh, of the, the, the presentation. Um, 707, he was imprisoned twice at the behest of some influential Sufis for, uh, again, criticizing some Sufi monists. Uh, 709, uh, he was sent to Alexandria uh, under house arrest after the uh, advent of uh, Babers of Jashnikir. This is a, a, someone, some uh, Mamluk who deposed another Mamluk from you know, the Sultanate of Egypt, and he became the Sultan. So uh, uh, Imam Temea was not basically in support of the coup d'etat. Um, so he sent him under house arrest to Alexandria. When the original Sultan, which is Nasser Muhammad ibn Qarawun, came back, he brought Ibn Temea back. Um, and uh, certainly um, he... he uh, he uh, basically was, uh, and not, not only because Ibn Taymiyyah uh, rejected the coup d'etat, but even before that, Sultan Allah Muhammad bin Qaralawan uh, had always respected Ibn Taymiyyah a great deal and loved him a great deal, despite the fact that he imprisoned him several times. Uh, but uh, but he uh, imprisoned him basically to avoid unrest. Ah, right. So it's a political decision rather than a personal grudge or anything like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So he, he brought him back from Alexandria in, in, a, in a ceremony, in a great ceremony. And then he consulted him in uh, basically uh, executing the judges that uh, not only uh, imprisoned Imam Taymiyyah before, but also sided with his enemy, uh, Babers of Jashnikir. So... Mm. At that time, Imam Taymiyyah, he said that, that, that these judges are great scholars. They are the best of uh, your raya uh, or, or uh, your people. And if you uh, get rid of them, you will never be able to replace them. Mm. Uh, and so he showed a great deal of uh, graciousness here. Mm. Uh, and then uh, 712, he went with the Sultan to basically... Uh, on a campaign to recover Damascus, he was still in Cairo. Uh, he, you know, for, he uh, 
you know, the imprisonment, imprisonment in Cairo is, uh, he, he, came, he came to Cairo uh, several years before that in 705. So we're talking about seven years now. Uh, then he left with the Sultan uh, on a campaign to recover uh, Damascus. And, uh, and ever since he, uh, he, he stayed in, uh, in Damascus uh, until he died. Uh, in 719, he was imprisoned in the citadel of Damascus for five months for a fatwa on divorce. Uh, many Muslim countries now uh, actually act on this fatwa, um, including uh, Egypt, for instance, my own. Uh, this, is, this is very ironic because in his day, it was very, very controversial fatwa without going into the issues, which I've read about a little bit. But now he, this view is accepted by all manner of schools of thought and theologians and philosophers and legal scholars as perfectly uh, a perfectly valid and indeed uh, approved of fatwa. So this is a great irony here. That would be an example of Ibn Timir's fatwa being widely accepted, uh, perhaps in contrast to some of his other views. Uh, correct, yes. Uh, so, so he had several fatwas on divorce in particular. And the reason why he was particularly concerned about divorce is the fact that, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the threefold composite of divorce resulted in the breakdown of many families. And, you know, what one utterance uh, basically can result in uh, this family uh, breaking apart uh, because the husband cannot take the wife back until she gets married. And uh, in order for him to take her back, she will need to, to, to marry. And they, they used to have different arrangements. Some of them were not consistent with the Sharia. Some of them were consistent with the Sharia, but also were causing a lot of social uh, disruption and also disgrace to Muslims, to the, to the Muslim community. Because even people, even when, when, when the French came to Egypt, they, they particularly commented on this practice of tahlil or, you know, at sort of temporary marriage to make the wife permissible for the first husband. Um, uh, but anyway, so he was particularly concerned about the, 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 the issue of divorce, and he had several fatwas on divorce. Uh, most of those fatwas have been widely accepted in our times, and uh, they, they have uh, been accepted by legislatures also throughout the Muslim countries. Um, 726 is when he was uh, imprisoned in the citadel in Damascus for his uh, condemnation of traveling to uh, shrines. Uh, and, uh, and it was not only the condemnation of traveling to shrines, but, but, but several factors, including divorce as well. So it, it was just like they, they got fed up with him, I guess. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so that uh, was 726 and 728 when he died and he was buried in the uh, cemetery of the Sufis and uh, hundreds of thousands of people in Damascus attended his funeral and it was, the, you know, it was said to be the greatest funeral in, in, uh, since the funeral of Imam Ahmed uh, uh, several hundred years earlier. Uh, so this suggests he was very popular with the people, not just, uh, obviously many scholars might not have liked him, but in terms of the masses, uh, he, he was very, very popular indeed, clearly. Yes, he, he, he certainly is, um, to, the, to the point that some people would call him a populist scholar, I mean, in a pejorative sense. Uh, but, but, uh, but we will come to see that he, I mean, he was, uh, he has this egalitarian epistemology, so he, uh, he was uh, for the people, but uh, not populist in, in a negative sense. No. 
Yeah, so uh, that was just like a quick overview of the life of Imam Taymiyyah, and I'll just talk about his distinction uh, and the reason why, uh, as I uh, said earlier, it is important to talk about his distinction because uh, the, the, the issues that Imam Taymiyyah spoke about are extremely serious issues. And if you're coming at, uh, you know, uh, in the second half of the seventh century uh, to talk about those issues, why and what gave you the right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, to, to talk about them. So uh, a few testimonials and endorsements will be helpful to uh, basically understand uh, how, you know, his status among the scholars and the fact that he reached the pinnacle of knowledge in the religious transmitted sciences and in the rational uh, sciences. So uh, just to show that he was qualified to talk about these serious issues. Uh, so Imam Ibn Dafiq al-Aid, for instance, um, is, is, you know, and, and all of these testimonials are from what we may say uh, tier one imams or tier one scholars, the, the highest, the greatest uh, uh, scholars. Um, so Imam Ibn Dafiq al-Aid is one of them, and he, saw, he said that I saw a person who had all the knowledge between his eyes. Um, and he said about him, I did not think that Allah is still creating people like you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Imam al said, I have not seen anyone uh, more knowledgeable. And Imam Mizzi was one of the greatest Hadith uh, scholars, uh, five or six years senior to Imam Taymiyyah. Imam Daqiq al-Aid was 30 years his senior. Imam al-Mizzi was about five or six years his senior. And he said, I have not seen uh, anyone more knowledgeable of the Book of Allah and the Sunnah of his Messenger and more compliant with them than him, Imam Taymiyyah. And Imam al-Zahabi is a student of him. <clears throat> so he uh, certainly he, he would have a favorable uh, opinion about him. But I will also uh, show a, closer to the end of the presentation how uh, sort of impartial and fair Imam al-Zahabi was in assessing uh, uh, Taymiyyah temperament in, in, in particular. Um, so, but he said, if I were to, to be made to swear by Allah between the corner of the Kaaba and the station of Ibrahim, uh, I would swear that I have not seen the like of him with my own two eyes, and by Allah, he has not seen his own like. Uh, similar statements were made by great imams like Al-Mizzi, Abu Hayyan al-Andalusi, and Ibn Zamlakani, uh, who was an opponent of Imam Ibn Taymiyyah, both Abu Hayyan al-Andalusi and Ibn Zamlakani. Um, Ibn Zamlakani uh, <clears throat> added uh, to this that uh, we that the like of him has not been seen for four or five hundred years, um, and uh, he he went on to say that uh, that's Ibn Zamlakani still that all prerequisites of ijtihad were fulfilled in him. Uh, the jurists of all schools would benefit from him if about their own schools. Uh, they would learn from him about their own uh, schools. Uh, Imam Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, um, who did not see Imam Taymiyyah, uh, he uh, came later. Uh, he died in 852 after Hijrah. He said the fame and renown of Sheikh Taqiyuddin as uh, an imam is clearer than the sun, and given him the title of Sheikh al-Islam in his era remains until our time upon the righteous tongues. And Imam Suyuti, and, and, and certainly I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Imam Suyuti uh, said that uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, when he described him, he, and Imam Suyuti, keep in mind that we're, we're 
mainly talking about Ashari scholars here. Wow, really? So these are actually these are these are not his allies in these uh, great debates. No. These are his opponents praising him. Yes, right. so, so people like Ibn Zamlakani, people like Ibn Hajar, people like Siyuti, uh these are Ashari scholars. Of course, Zahabi was not an Ashari scholar, uh, but but the rest of them are Ashari scholars. The, so an Imam Suyuti, who's an unknown Ashari and Sufi scholar, says Ibn Taymiyyah, the Sheikh, the Imam, the Allama, great scholar, the Hafiz, the critic, the Faqih, the Mujtahid, the brilliant exegete, uh, the Sheikh of Islam, the leader of ascetics, the gem of our times. Uh, and uh, here is a Hanafi Maturidi scholar, like also a very uh, great uh, Hanafi Maturidi scholar, Imam Badreddin Al-Aini, who was um, him and Imam and Hafiz ibn Hajar, uh, Imam ibn Hajar, they lived at the, around the same time and they both wrote commentaries on Sahih al-Bukhari. Uh, but Imam Badr al-Aini, who lived at that time, keep in mind that this is a time where Ibn Taymiyyah died in prison. There were, he, Ibn Taymiyyah had so many enemies uh, that made that fear of him. Uh, some of them were scholars. Uh, some of them were great scholars. Uh, uh, you know, uh, but uh, uh, but certainly not in the caliber in the caliber of the, of these scholars uh, that that we're talking about now. Um, so so if for for these scholars to come out and say this, um, this was not easy, uh, uh, and uh, certainly it, it it shows their uh, fairness and their uh, courage as well. So Imam Badreddin al-Aini al-Hanafi, uh, who's a Maturidi uh, scholar, uh, Hanafi Maturidi scholar, said that uh, uh, he is the Imam, the virtuous, the masterful, the pious, the devout, the knight in the sciences of hadith and tafsir, fiqh and the two foundations of the deen, with erudition and precision. He's the mighty sword against the innovators, the authority who established the matter of the religion, the great commander of the good and forbidder of the evil. Uh, he possessed uh, willpower and bravery and embarked upon that which frightened and deterred others. He was of much remembrance, fasting, prayer, and worship. Uh, one of our contemporary scholars, uh, certainly uh, a late scholar who died, re uh, you know, uh, recently, relatively, I guess, a contemporary scholar anyway, Al-Alama Abu Hassan Al-Nadwi, um, uh, for, from from India, uh, he's also a Hanafi uh, scholar, uh, largely Maturidi. Uh, used similar wordings to describe his multitasked personality as an erudite scholar, activist, mujahid, and devout worshiper. A combination that rarely existed outside of the uh, earlier generations. So, the, the, and certainly volumes have been written, you know, many, many uh, volumes have been written about the, the, these testimonials. I'm just uh, selecting some of them uh, from, from people who do not share his uh, same theological orientation, mainly from people who do not share his same theological orientation. Otherwise, if I, you know, basically uh, add to this the testimonials of his own students, and he had you know, a number of, of the great scholars as his students, like Imam Ibn Qayyim, like uh, Imam uh, uh, Ibn Kathir, uh, Ibn Fadl al-Umari, uh, uh, and uh, Ibn Qadi al-Jabal, uh, Ibn Muflah. Uh, uh, certainly I did talk about Imam al-Zahabi. Uh, 
So, so we had many, uh, basically, uh, scholars of the greatest caliber uh, calling themselves his students. Even al Hafid al-Mizzi would consider himself his student, even uh, despite the fact that he was five years his senior. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, I, I wanted to, 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 to talk a little bit about his distinction in the rational sciences now, because that's important. Because the question that may arise is, uh, as a Hanbali jurist, why do you get involved in this? You know, if you're a Hanbali jurist, uh, Hanbali means uh, textualist to some people, although we like to call it scripturalist. Uh, but, uh, but, but regardless of what people would call Hanbalis, but they are known to be textualists, uh, to basically give a lot of weight to the text of, of Revelation. And if you are a textualist and you're Hanbali, why are you talking about those issues and why are you getting involved in, in, in these discussions uh, and this interface between reason and revelation? Um, so a, a little bit about his distinction in the rational sciences, Imam Suyuti, and Imam Suyuti was not a great fan of rational of, of logic in particular. That does not mean that he was oblivious to rational sciences, of course not, uh, but, but he was not a great fan of uh, logic, and he uh, s- summarized uh, the book of Imam Taymiyyah, uh, Response to the Logicians, Radda al-Muntaqiyin, he summarized it. This is uh, the book that was translated, the summary, uh, is the book that was translated by Professor Halak. Uh, and uh, uh, the, Professor Halak said about Ibn Taymiyyah's critique of uh, Greek logic, uh, he said the most devastating attacks ever leveled against the logical system upheld by the early Greeks. Mm. Many people do recognize the, uh, this. Uh, Professor Taha Abdurrahman, who's not Taymiyyan, uh, at all. He is pro-Ghazalian. Uh, some people consider him to be purely a Ghazalian, even though he uh, would disagree uh, because he is uh, the most prominent uh, philosopher in the Muslim world uh, with with uh, sort of an Islamic orientation. So the most prominent sort of uh, religious philosopher in the Muslim world uh, nowadays. Um so Professor uh, Taha Abdurrahman um, said that Ibn Taymiyyah was not an ordinary logician, but a renewer of logic. His contributions to logic are more innovative than any other contemporary logicians, including the great philosophers such as Al-Farabi and Ibn Sina, who all remained prisoners of Aristotle's principles. Uh, the difference with Ibn Taymiyyah is that he uh, was not uh, imprisoned uh, in the Aristotelian a worldview uh, or Aristotelian uh, principles of logic, and he critiqued them. Uh, Professor uh, Tayyip Abuaza would would uh, agree, greatly agree with this statement. Uh, Professor Abu Arab Marzuki, who is also a, a, Muslim, a contemporary Muslim philosopher, uh, recognized him and Ibn Khaldun as the two greatest thinkers um, with genuine contribution to Islamic thought in the Middle Ages. Uh, genuine me- meaning not borrowed uh, from uh, from uh, sort of Greek philosophy uh, in particular. Uh, Professor uh, Anki von Kukilgen, uh, if I'm saying her name correctly, uh, she, she is uh, emeritus professor uh, of Islamic studies and um, she's an Ibn Taymiyyah uh, expert as well. 
She argued that his work is relevant to the broader philosophical tradition and his critique of the limits of reason and the role of language uh, in human knowledge anticipated uh, modern debates in the philosophy of language and epistemology. <clears throat> professor Ali al-Nashar, uh, the late Professor uh, Ali al-Nashar said that he preceded Francis Bacon and Mill in highlighting the importance of inductive reasoning. Uh, and one of the traditional scholars, I would conclude by this uh, statement or uh, observation of one of our traditional scholars, Al-Alama Shibli Nomani. Uh, he recognized uh, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah basically as the greatest thinker uh, in, or the greatest contributor to rational sciences uh, in our history. Uh, no. In, in a comparison bet, uh, between him and, and Imam al-Ghazali, rahimahullah. Uh, anyway, that, that shows that Ibn Taymiyyah was not uh, basically involving himself in matters that are beyond his uh, reach. At least we can say that. Uh, now I will talk about Islamic beliefs. Uh, certainly the, the focus in Islamic beliefs is on the unity of God. Uh, but uh, we'll discuss like a, a sort of a bird's eye view of uh, the six pillars of faith and how we can <clears throat> basically converge them into three or even two. Uh, and we'll uh, talk about the divine attributes uh, and Qadr because these are the two issues uh, that are uh, somewhat controversial or the discussions about them are uh, a source of controversy. Um, so every, uh, you know, most Muslims, uh, or maybe every Muslim, uh, would know that the six pillars of faith are to believe in Allah, the angels, the books, the messengers, the last day, and predestination. Um, so the green here would be, you know, conversion the six pillars into uh, three pillars. I would use the green to say that the, the three pillars would be God, the last day, and prophethood. <clears throat> So where did we come from? Where are we going? And how do we get there? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, basically. So uh, <clears throat> the angels, the books, the messengers, uh, this is about prophethood because the, the role of the angels, the, the, the greatest role of angels is to bring down the revelation from God to, uh, to humanity uh, through the uh, human messenger. So you have the angelic messenger, you have the human messenger, and you have the message. Uh, so all of this is about uh, prophethood, the establishment of prophethood. And, and, and the last day, and predestination, and uh, so God and predestination. Predestination is uh, der derives itself from the concept of God's qudra, or omnipotence and omniscience. Uh, so if he is omniscient and omnipotent, uh, then everything is predestined uh, by him. Uh, he's in control of all things, um, and that's the concept of predestination. So you could converge predestination. If you want to condense the, the six into three, uh, you could uh, basically uh, uh, consider predestination to be a, a subtitle of the belief in God, uh, and uh, then, uh, then we will will have three for simplification. Just this is a classification. We're not denying that the pillars of faith in Islam are six pillars. We're not saying that they are three and they are not six. We're just trying to simplify uh, things uh, into you know uh, 
broader concepts. So it, there is not much controversy. There are there are controversies regarding the other uh, pillars of faith, but the, the, the controversy there is not that great. Uh, mm. And there are not that many controversies uh, regarding the last day, regarding prophethood, but mo most of the controversy is about God and certainly, you know, the greatness of, of God uh, would make this expected. Uh, mm. uh, so the divine attributes and predestination, these are the two topics uh, that Muslims disagreed uh, about uh, uh, traditionally and historically a great deal. Mm. Um, so, uh, since since the, our main discussion will be about divine attributes, uh, let's first address uh, the issue of predestination, uh, and and then we will focus on the divine attributes and the Taimian project concerning the divine attributes and the language of the revelation and how do we basically uh, preserve our uh, sense of uh, you know, the, the accuracy of the language of the revelation, the precision, uh, comprehensibility of the language of uh, revelation. So, Qadr, predestination. So, the, dis the discussion uh, here is about the balance between human responsibility and God's omnipotence. And this is basically, uh, from our perspective as human beings, because we have limited knowledge, uh, this would be a dilemma. Uh, from from our human perspective, and this was not a dilemma for Muslims only. This was a dilemma for all uh, people of religion, and it was it also uh, has been a dilemma for philosophers uh, from the beginning of philosophy. Mm. Um, so scholars have different ways of reconciling uh, these two propositions: how good could God be omnipotent and omniscient, and uh, we can have at the same time free will and uh, thus be accountable. Um, so Imam Taymiyyah, uh, in this discussion, in the, in the discussion of the divine attributes, uh, we will show that Imam Taymiyyah was much closer to the earlier Ash'aris. Uh, and, and, and we have to stress the, 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 the earlier part. Uh, so mm -hmm. he's much closer to the earlier Ash'aris. Uh, then uh, the Maturites, but in the discussion of Qadr, he, he was closer to the Maturites than the Ash'aris. Uh, and according to Encyclopedia Britannica, and uh, I retrieved this in 2009, I, I think it may be still there. Uh, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, he sought, Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, rahimahullah, sought to rehabilitate human freedom and responsibility. So we will, we will see how he tried to do that. So uh, most, you know, uh, the, one of the first discussions that uh, pertain to the concept of Qadr and pertain to the concept of divine decree uh, and divine, divine decree and divine command is uh, basically two parts. Uh, there is prescriptive and there is creative. Uh, we don't disagree that we have to submit to the prescriptive, um, which is basically God commanding us to pray and to fast and so on. Uh, but divine decrees that are creative, God causing health and sickness and, you know, the, the famines and earthquakes and 
all of these things. This is the creative divine uh, decree, uh, which we call Qadar Kauni. Qadar Shara'i would be the prescriptive. Qadar Kauni would be uh, the creative. Um, and how do we deal with the creative divine decree? That's that's the issue. So uh, pertinent to this discussion is the discussion uh, on uh, divine actions and whether actions uh, have intrinsic value or they don't have intrinsic value. So most of the Asharis versus the Maturides believe that actions have no intrinsic value. And they were driven by concern for, um, you know, they, they privileged divine will, irada, right. divine will, uh, over anything else. Uh, and they, um, they, they felt that we need, just need to submit. Uh, and they wanted to drive this in. And that's not a bad motivation. But, but this made them uh propose that actions have no intrinsic value and may only acquire one through divine command and prohibition mm. so ibn Taymiyyah, uh, rahimahullah argued that acts do have intrinsic value uh that makes them uh hasan or qabih beautiful or ugly so the mm. concept of tahsin and taqbih uh, can you describe acts without divine uh, revelation, or do acts have intrinsic value that make them beautiful or ugly without divine uh, revelation? Uh, he, he, he proposed that, yes, acts do have uh, intrinsic value. Uh, and he proposed also that God wills and commands that which is good and wise in itself or for another wisdom. Or he, he added that when God commands something, it becomes beautiful, and when he forbids something, it becomes qabir. But that does not mean that intrinsic, that, that actions do not have an intrinsic value. Mm. Uh, and he said that Ibrahim's submission, or Abraham's submission to the command of God to slaughter Ismail uh, was, was beautiful. Uh, but the act itself, God would not basically command him to slaughter his son unless it was for another wisdom. And the wisdom here was to test his submission. Uh, so eventually God did not let him slaughter his son. God just wanted him to show his submission. And that was the wisdom. But everything that God does or that, that God commands is... Uh, basically uh, subject to his wisdom. Like God does not do anything that is not congruent or consistent with wisdom. Now, Imam Tamir is clear on, and, and he makes it clear that our wisdom basically is not the measuring stick because we may or may not, may or may not comprehend his wisdom. We have to believe that everything he does is wise, but that does not mean that we force our uh, own wisdom on him. Mm. Uh, because we may or may not comprehend his wisdom. So the equal value of the divine attributes uh, of, of irada and wisdom uh, in his conception uh, made him subscribe to an optimistic theodicy, 
mm. uh, that we may talk about uh, later. But the, for him, the preponderator of divine actions in general is divine wisdom. The preponderator of divine actions in general is divine wisdom. So now on the issue of secondary causality, so, uh, uh, you know, his, uh, and, and the mention of the Ash'aris again is because the, the, the chief interlocutors of Imam Taymiyyah are the Ash'ari scholars who used to be the majority of Muslim scholars, of Sunni Muslim scholars in his time. Yeah. So the, the, the Ash'aris or Ash'ari scholars believed that the unity of divine acts necessitates the negation of any non-divine causality. They were concerned with God's will. They privileged God's will. Included uh, so so there is no non-divine causality, including human agency. So they introduced the concept of kasb, which means that or suggests that the human act was merely synchronized with God's creation, that made that that made the human responsible, that made mm -hmm. the human responsible. But it is merely synchronized. So your your act is not causing, or the, the effect, it or your will is not causing the act. It's merely synchronized mm -hmm. uh, with the divine will, uh, but you're still responsible. So, so, that, 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 so uh, without going into the obscurities of this, that sounds paradoxical to me, both to affirm and not to affirm at the same time. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to be terribly coherent. If you say. So, so, so most of the most of the Muslim theologians from outside the Ashari tra tradition and even within the Ashari tradition have a great difficulty coming to terms with the concept of kasp mm. uh, and and with how the synchronization makes us responsible and accountable. Mm, indeed. So. so Along with the Sufi emphasis on surrender to divine will, both prescriptive and creative. Now, the idea of surrendering to the prescriptive divine decree, the, the commands of God, pray, fast, don't kill, don't steal. Of course, uh, all Muslims will have to agree that you must submit. Now, the issue of divine decree that is creative, like he gets sick, should you surrender to this? Mm. There is like, you know, so so there has been some emphasis in uh, uh, certainly and and uh, and particularly that we're talking about Imam Taymiyyah. Imam Taymiyyah uh, wrote on Sufism. And as I said in the beginning of this discussion, you know, some of his opponents feel that his writings on Sufism are like a source of wisdom that uh, people can can benefit from. So he was not opposed to uh, basically Sharia compliant Sufism in any way. Mm. Um, uh, he was a proponent of Sharia compliant Sufism. I, I like that. So I, I like that expression, Sharia compliant Sufism, because so, so often that, that um, some of the contemporary followers of Ibn Taymiyyah, so-called, just reject Sufism completely. The uh, root and branch, no matter what it's what it is, it's all bad to be rejected. But in fact, you, 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 I think you're accurate. You're right. Having uh, also, in my own small way, read a bit of Ibn Taymiyyah, that a Sharia compliant Sufism, he was perfectly happy with, uh, and I was quite explicit on that point. So, but there's a, a slight mismatch between some of his contemporary followers today and what he actually taught in his writings, which I kind of I've just noticed that. That's all. 
Yeah, he considers he considers uh, Sharia compliance Sufism an integral part of Islam, um, and uh, he was he's perfectly happy with it. Uh, he himself was one. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, but at at any rate, uh, the, 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 there are uh, certainly excesses within the Sufi tradition. There are mm -hmm. imposters. There are imposters who do not belong to the tradition. They claim to belong to the tradition. And they cause the law of harm to the uh, name and reputation of Sufism. And there are people who commit excesses. They are sincere, but they they are wrong and they commit excesses and they undermine the the place or the office of reason uh, and impugn it. Uh, so so anyway, but th there was emphasis on surrendering to the, the divine uh, decree, the creative uh, de decree. Some of them would say that the Mongols are part of the uh, divine decree. Uh, you don't resist them. Uh, mm. uh, you know, uh, Sheikh Bashir al-Ibrahimi, one of the uh, basically uh, leaders of the resistance movement against French occupation of, uh, of Algeria, uh, he talked a lot about, you know, Sufi uh, Sufis uh, of his time that are that were saying that France is part of the divine decree, that the occupation, the French occupation of Algeria is just part of the divine decree. Resisting this would be resisting God, resisting yeah. divine decree. So that concept of, of submitting to the, the divine uh, decree, uh, the creative uh, one, and, 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 and I have to be honest with you also, you know, it, it's not... It's not like it, it is completely made up. You you find, for instance, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, and I'm Hanbali, and he is my Imam, but you find Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, for instance, saying that um, not taking medicine is superior for a certain ranking of people, you know, it, it is, uh, and this is opposed to the position of the three other madhahib, because the Prophet said, Tadawa, seek medicine, seek treatment. Right. For Allah had not sent down a disease except that he sent down, he sent down the cure uh, with it. Um, whoever knows it, knows it. Whoever doesn't know it, does not know it. But this is the Prophet encouraging us to seek treatment. The Prophet encouraging us also to seek me medicine and to discover treatments for every disease. Because that, that's a very optimistic view that every disease does have a cure. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so... so but but Imam Ahmad made that statement, and uh, you know that is that is his position. So can you say that this is uh, that that the, the fuqaha and then where you know the, the Sufis uh, made this all up, and there was no basically um, there were no roots for this in Islamic thought in general. No. You, you know, but but certainly the the, the Sufis uh, or some of the Sufis have taken it to an extent that was unthinkable uh, to any of uh, the, the the great scholars. And and keep in mind that Imam Ahmad did, did not say that seeking medicine or treatment is is a bad thing. He, he just said it's khilaf al for the highest ranking of uh, believers who mm. what would trust in God to the extent that they would not need uh, to seek medicine. Anyway, so so the, 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 that uh, basically concept of cusp, along with uh, the emphasis on surrendering to the divine decree, the creative uh, uh, decree, 
um, according to some uh, caused some indifference and some pacifism in in our history. Mm. Uh, and uh, so what is the Taymiyyan view now on secondary causality? So Imam Taymiyyah, first he said that actions have intrinsic value. Uh, that that uh, makes them hasan or qabih or beautiful or, or ugly, uh, that God does only what is wise, whether or not we uh, can comprehend it, comprehend his wisdom, um, that consequently we should only do that which is wise. Um, he, he's, 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 uh, so he comes up with a, with a concept of insufficient cause to basically explain uh, divine uh, human agency. So he says that God creates things through causes. It is God's way of doing things. God brings the effects uh, through causes. So uh, he mentioned ma many verses in the Quran where you know the concept of secondary causality uh, is can can be seen. Uh, for instance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about the rain, that he sends down the rain, causing to grow thereby gardens of joyful joyful beauty. So thereby, by the rain. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, he says that it is basically irrational and inconceivable to say that the eye has no potency more than the cheek uh, to, to see things. Uh, or the leg, you know, so, or the fire has no potency to burn more than water, or, mm. you know, so he says that this is not inconceivable, that there is potency in these creatures that God placed in them, and God causes, you know, the, the effect, uh, or, you know, the, the, uh, the enacted thing to basically come be created is uh, to be realized in the external world through causes. Uh, so divine will is the only necessary and sufficient cause. So God says be, and it is. So it's it is necessary because you can't do anything without his will. And it is sufficient in and of itself. Any other cause is insufficient. And he turns to the philosophers and says that you would agree that uh, in, a, in addition to the effective cause, you need the material cause, for instance. Forget about the first and the final cause or the teleological cause or the first cause. Forget about all of this. You agree that at least you need with the effective cause, a material cause. Mm -hmm. So the fire does not burn rubies, for instance. Yes. And uh, like, if I do this and do this, this did not create any sound, although it's the same movement, but you needed the material cause. Mm -hmm. Or if I do this against like a wall or something, it would not create a sound. It, it like, so you need, in addition to the effective cause, the, the material cause. So how could you think that the effective cause is sufficient? No, it's not sufficient. Mm. You, need, you need more than this. Um, and so he, he, he says that the human, he, the human will is insufficient cause. It's a cause. It's effective, but it is insufficient. And that is why we're responsible and accountable. Uh, 
in terms of you know and and i and i actually watched i watch a lot of your shows by the way as I may have told you so i watched your dr jalajal dr on here yes so so i'm not going to talk a lot about this because i think that particular show is very informative on the cause of closures for, for Imam Taymiyyah, causal closures would be more exciting than causal gaps because they point to the intelligent creator uh, of, of the laws. Mm. Uh, and uh, ultimately, uh, you know, we may say, uh, even though I believe that, uh, the, that the position of Imam Taymiyyah is closer to the balance of Sharia uh, or the balance uh, that uh, was presented to us by the revelation, the balance between the, the divine power and omnipotence and human agency, but I would uh, concede, I would basically admit uh, that no explanation will completely quench our thirst for solving this dilemma uh, mm. once and forever. Mm. Uh, and it is one of the greatest mysteries. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I guess yeah. That, that would be enough for that. Uh, yeah. Now with the divine attributes. Um, so um, the attributes of God are attributes of beauty, majesty, and perfection. So Jamal, Jalal, Kamal. So beauty is Jamal, majesty is Jalal, and perfection is Kamal. Uh, but we divide them, we have like different divisions of the, the divine attributes. First, in terms of how they describe God. So we have affirmatory and negatory. Uh, affirmatory is God hears. Uh, negatory, God does not forget. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, we have in terms of what they describe, the essential attributes that describe the divine ipsity and we have the volitional attributes or the voluntary attributes that, the, the, that describe the divine actions. The first would be Zatiyah, the second would be Fa'liyah or Ikhtiyariyah. And in terms of their source and uh, um, how we establish them, from a scripturalist viewpoint, we don't have purely rationalist, although we agree that through reason alone, we can establish some divine attributes. We can know things about God, but we will not call them divine attributes unless he calls them his attributes. Mm. But, but we can establish the existence of God. We can establish the perfection of God. We can establish the knowledge of God. We can establish the life of God uh, through reason without the revelation, but we will not call them attributes. Uh, you know, you know, unless they come to us through the revelation, we can we can use them to talk about God. It may be more, you know, um, a disagreement of form than substance. We can use them to talk about God, but we will call call them sifat or attributes only if they came in the scriptures. So we have uh, attributes that are scriptural and transmitted. We call them sam'iyya khabariyya. Uh, had, the, had the revelation not told us about them, we would have not been able to establish them uh, for God. 
we have attributes that are scriptural and rationalist, samaiya akleya. So we we uh, they are were transmitted. They came in the revelation, but reason also leads to establishing those attributes. So uh, that that is something that's understood uh, within the Athari tradition and the rationalist theology uh, tradition. Uh, although in the rationalist theology tradition, they would not they would call them akleya. They would call them rationalist. They they say that these are attributes that reason alone can establish. Mm. Of course, they do recognize that they are also mentioned in the Revelation. Uh, so uh, Allah describes himself with different attributes in the Quran or in the Sunnah of the Prophet. The Prophet, peace be upon him, described them with different attributes. Uh, so in the beginning, <laughs> you know, the, the God of the Quran. Mm. So uh, the God of the Quran is above the majestic throne, hearing our every word as we speak and responding to our supplications. He loves those who obey his commands and his mercy embraces all things. It was he who spoke to Moses in the sacred valley of Toa. On the day of judgment, he will grasp the heavens and earth, rolling them up in his right hand. On that day, the believers would witness his splendid beauty with their own eyes uh, in their head. May Allah grant us uh, and all his faithful servants the joy of this vision, regardless of their opinions. So the indisputable fact here is that the Quran unequivocally affirms the existence of a personal God who transcends the limits of mere words and ideas and reigns supreme in a realm beyond our mortal comprehension. And do do we use the word do we use the expression shahs person for God as an attribute? No, we don't, but we can tell about him using this expression. It's not an attribute uh, that, that is established, although the prophet did speak uh, in a sense about shakhs uh, in reference to God, uh, but it is not an established attribute because the, the way the prophet uh, said it would not establish it as an attribute, uh, but we can certainly talk about God uh, in the sense of a personal God. Mm. Uh, so that is the, the Quranic depiction of God. Now, is there is there a disagreement between the uh, scripturalist and the rationalist theologians on the Quranic description of God? No, there is not. There is not. So let me give you this statement here from Imam al-Taftazani, rahimahullah, who is a great uh, scholar from both the Ash'ari and the Maturidi traditions, uh, because uh, he was Hanafi, but he was um, leaning more Ash'ari in his theology. But he, he was the first one, basically, because there was a lot of contention between the two schools, the Ash'aris and Maturidis, and we had all sorts of contention between all of our schools throughout the history. And we may talk uh, later about you know, the way we go forward. But at any rate, Imam al-Tafazani wanted to bring them a bit together closer uh, because he himself was Hanafi. So uh, in, in a sense, um, uh, Maturidi, more Maturidi, but, but he was more inclined to the Ash'ari theology. 
uh, even though he was uh, Hanafi uh, in his uh, fiqh. So the Imam Taftazani uh, says here, uh, if it is said, if the correct religious belief is the negation of spatial locatedness, sp spatialism, spatial locatedness and directionality, the aboveness of God, why is it then that the heavenly scriptures, and they usually talk about the heavenly scriptures, uh, Imam Temeya does this often, Rashi's theologians do this often, because, you know, whenever the, 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 the Torah and the Gospel corroborate what's in the Quran, you could also uh, mention them uh, as, as corroborating what the Quran uh, uh, says, even though the Quran is not in need of corroboration. But to say that this is basically what all people of religion uh, or heavenly religions believe then, uh, is to, to add some weight to your argument. So he says, why is it then that the heavenly scriptures and the prophetic traditions imply in countless instances the affirmation of that without of that which is spatial locatedness and directionality without a single instance of negating it? So we don't disagree that this is what the scriptures said. <laughs> So the answer that Imam Taftazani provides here is, he says, uh, the answer is because exoneration from directionality is something the intellects of the masses cannot comprehend to the extent that they would be certain that something that does not exist in any direction does not exist at all. Therefore, the most appropriate speech for them, the closest to their reform and the most suitable for their invitation to the truth is what is apparent in the form of anthropomorphism and the existence of the creator in the noblest direction with subtle indications, daqiq, subtle indications of the absolute transcendence from anything that is characteristic of contingency. And why is it characteristic of contingency? We will come to discuss this later, but what we wanted to establish here Something uh, very similar to this was said also by Imam al-Razi rahimahullah uh, regarding the, the scriptures, what the scriptures establish. So we agree that this is, you know, the scripture established, uh, established this depiction of God. So can, can, I, can I just focus on that just for a second? I mean, it's an incredibly important passage you read there. I mean, uh, forgive me for being a bit polemical, but it strikes me that the author of that passage is saying in effect, although perhaps not by intention, that the Quran presents a slightly misleading understanding of God in terms of the alleged spatial locatedness and directionality. But the Quran does this anyway to so that the masses, the ordinary people, in a somewhat patronizing way, uh, can, can have some understanding, even though it's inaccurate. Um, so the, the Quran is, is slightly misleading. Uh, from from a philosopher or a theologian's point of view, uh, but but we understand that, and it's the masses need this kind of language to latch on to. Otherwise, they're not going to get it. It's a very um, it's slightly unsettling, isn't it? <laughs> the picture of the Quran. You're no longer dealing directly with it. You have to filter it and interpret it in a way that renders it um, acceptable from a philosophical and theological point of view. But the common masses, they don't need that. That they, they'll believe something is not quite true, but that means the Quran is misleading them technically 
Uh, am I being unfair in saying that? Well, uh, that is what uh, that Imam Taymiyyah will, <laughs> will argue, uh, that uh, what, you, what you're saying amounts to uh, the Qur'an being unclear and misleading. Yes. <laughs> well, it, it just I mean, whether or not I, I agree with Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, but it seems it, just the logic of that statement itself, in itself, suggests that, whatever Ibn Taymiyyah may agree or not, you know what I mean? It, it suggests that philosophers know the real meaning, the masses don't get it, but God kind of misleads them with stuff that they can understand. You know, it, it, it just seemed a bit unedifying. You know? But yeah. I, I'm, I don't get involved in my opinions there, but that, that was just how it struck me, just reading that for the, for the first time. Yeah, and, and, and I have to be, I have to also be fair to the rationalist theologians because Imam Tiftazani, although they consider him to be one of the highest authorities among the later generations, uh, and Imam Razi had a similar statement and they considered him to be one of the highest authorities as well, yeah. uh, they may, they may not all agree with that statement. They may not, they may find this explanation to be, uh, rather, uh, their their own and and are not uh, basically uh, representative of uh, what they believe, uh, what the the entire school believes. Uh, but uh, honestly speaking, if we are uh, condemning the twofold truth of uh, Ibn Rushd Averroes, I, I I don't think that the twofold truth is is any different from this. In fact, the, the twofold truth twofold truth may be cleverer. Than this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, so then, uh, someone like an Imam Al Jawani, rahimahullah, Imam Al Haramain Al Jawani, rahimahullah, said the Imams of the predecessors um, uh, refrained from ta'wil, which is reinterpretation, uh, leaving the explicit wording of the texts to stand as they have come and consigning or delegating their meaning to the Lord Most High. So Imam, uh, we, we all agree that this is the language of the Quran. So what did the, what did the predecessors, what did the Salaf yeah. uh, do about the language of the Quran? And Imam al-Jawaini is saying that the Salaf refrained from reinterpretation. They would let, they would leave the, basically the explicit wording of the text stand as they have come. And they delegated their meaning to the Lord most high. Okay, the concept of ta'wil is basically when you give a, a, a metaphoric or a, a, a secondary interpretation uh, to the words uh, because the, because of some proof uh, that, that you have. This is the valid ta'wil. If you have a valid proof, whether it is contextual or intertextual uh, proof, that what is intended is not the primary meaning, mm. then you present your proof. You say, mm. what is intended is not the primary meaning. Look at the context or look at this other text. So it's contextual or intertextual. And yeah. Imam Taymiyyah uh, approves of ta'wil in principle, although in his contextual theory, it is rarely needed unless it's intertextual. So, right. but, but in his contextual theory, uh, the apparent meaning is what comes first to the mind, and that what comes first to the mind comes, you know, through the context, not alone. The word does not 
you know, come the meaning of the word does not come to you in isolation from the context of uh, the word. But that we will, will certainly be, you know, that we among the predecessors that take place, you know, sometimes they meet that we reinterpretation. Uh, if you think that this is that we, and we were, you know, the, the, the concept, the concept here, or the point here is that we're, we don't need to disagree over uh, terminology here, but mm. some, let's take this verse, for instance, on the screen, everyone upon the earth will perish and there will remain the face of your Lord, honor of majesty and honor. Would anyone in his sane mind believe that, first of all, you know, uh, atheries are not believing that the wedge is part, limb, or organ, or this or that? Uh, but would anyone, with any sensible person, believe that only the face of your Lord, not your Lord, not your entire Lord? Uh, but no one will believe that. No one that would not be the primary meaning of the verse mm -hmm. for a sensible audience. So Ibn Taymiyyah would not consider this to be ta'wil or reinterpretation. He says that this is a no-brainer. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the primary meaning is that only God will remain and everything else will perish. Right. Anyway, so Imam Taymiyyah would agree with Imam al-Jawaini that no one of, that the Salaf were not involved in reinterpretation. The exceptions are known, but it, it did not mean that they reinterpreted the attributes. Uh, but there, there, there are some, uh, some exceptions that are agreed on. But, but they, they uh, are in agreement that the Salaf did not do reinterpretation or ta'weed. Imam Chawaini, however, and that is, in his second phase, when he wrote his book in Nizamiya, because his first book in Irshad, he supported Ta'weel, reinterpretation, forcefully against Tafweed, delegation. In his second phase, he supported delegation forcefully against Ta'weel. Mm. So, but in his second phase, the Tafweed, the delegation of Imam al Jawaini, is delegation of the meaning. He said that the Salaf delegated or consigned the meaning to God. Mm. So Imam Ibn Taymiyyah would disagree with this. He said that, yes, they were, not, they were not involved in reinterpretation, but what they consigned to God is not the meaning, the apparent meaning. What they consigned to God is what Imam Ibn Taymiyyah uh, uh, basically uses different terms for. He said they affirmed the apparent meaning and they only delegated to God the knowledge of the howness. Uh, how is it? The howness, modality, quintessential nature, which he uh, uses the word kunh to refer to, quiddity, what is itness, which he uses mahiya or ma'iya to refer to. Ontological reality, haqiqa, external reality, haqiqa. Uh, the, uh, so he said that they delegated the howness, modality, quintessential nature, the quality and ontological reality to God. And he would say that, yes, 
and they do not encompass him in knowledge. We don't encompass God in knowledge. And he would clearly say, and this is the first time here I would have a quotation uh, in, the, in this format, and I have the Arabic to one side, and the Arabic is in a very small font, but mm. I, wanted, I wanted to have it, because we, this is an English presentation here, but I wanted to have it for the people who want to go back and verify, because it would be easier to look up the Arabic statements uh, than, than the English statements, because the English statements would, are my, my translation. So, so anyway, Imam Taymiyyah says, and similarly, the signification of his names and attributes, which are specific to him and constitute his reality. That is the haqiqa, the external, the ontological reality, cannot be known except by him. Uh, and then he talks about, you know, conceptualization of the unseen. Can we conceptualize the unseen? And he's, he, he maintains that we can conceptualize parts of the unseen. He says there is no doubt that among the unseen matters, there are those that can be absolutely described for us to conceptualize them. They, they can be described for us to conceptualize them, while others can only be described after certain conditions and preparation, receptivity, receptivity. So maybe when the prophet went up in the journey, the night journey and ascent, he had a, a different nature. Certainly he had a different nature as, as the prophet than us. Uh, despite, despite the fact that we all agree on his humanity, but, but as a prophet, he was capable of uh, receiving the message and communicating with the angelic messenger. So he had a different receptivity. And then in, in the night journey and ascent, he had different receptivity. So he recognizes that. But he says that some of the things of the unseen cannot be described in this world except in a general way. And some cannot be described in this world in any way. There are also matters no creature can know that is in this world and in the hereafter. So there are only matters about God that only God can know. Uh, and no creature can encompass, not even in the hereafter. Not even in the hereafter. So that is why he says, Allah says, and no soul, no soul knows what has been hidden for them of the lights for the for the eyes. In the authentic hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said, Allah has prepared for his righteous servants things that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has ever conceived. He says, that which is not conceived by the heart, if it was described to you, you would not realize it unless there is a counterpart. Um, so he, he basically has like five different uh, shades of conceptualization. Mm -hmm. There are mm -hmm. things that we can conceptualize can be described to us. And on the opposite end, there are things that we will never conceptualize, not here, not in the hereafter, only God can know them about himself. Okay, so uh, the, his key statement, which basically encapsulates his uh, belief in the divine attributes, uh, will come here. It is based on this verse. 
وهو السميع البصير There is nothing like unto him and he is the hearing, the seeing and this is basically the equation that all uh, Sunni theologians, rationalists and athari would use yeah. so, Imam Ibn Taymiyyah would say uh, uh, his key statements here are affirming what Allah has affirmed of the attributes without howness or modality, assimilation, distortion, or negation. So if you want a more poetic statement of his, it's that bila tamthil wa tanzih bila ta'til, affirmation without assimilation, likening God to the creatures, and exoneration, that's tanzih, without negation, ta'til. So these are words that are usually used in this context. Isbat is affirmation, tanzih is exoneration, that is acknowledging the transcendence and incomparability of God. You may call it de-anthropomorphism. Tamthil is claiming sameness or similarity. Tashbih is likening God to the creatures. Tahrif would be distortion or alteration. Ta'til would be negation or stripping God of his attributes. So, once again, the key statement is affirmation without assimilation and exoneration without negation. So, so Imam Taymiyyah is saying, no, the Salaf, we're not saying, we're not consigning the meaning or delegating the meaning. They understood the meaning. They delegated the howness, the ontological reality, uh, the quintessential uh, nature uh, of uh, the attributes to God. Uh, now, the issue here is, could they really, why did they misunderstand the Salaf? Or is it possible that great Imams would have a disagreement over something quite obvious like this? And uh, there are so many reports from the Salaf, how could they disagree? Mm. So someone like an Imam Ibn Qudama, for instance, who died in 620 after Hijrah, who was a Hanbali scholar, and many people think that Imam Ibn Qudama makes tafweed, that is delegation or consigning the meaning to God. The fact that people disagree over one person, whether the person is dele delegating the meanings to God or not, shows you the, the, the difficulty of this discussion. Mm. So Imam Ibn Qudama, in my belief, was not consigning the, the meaning to God. Yes, he used words that may infer that. But the issue here is like Imam Taymiyyah, he himself, some of his statements may be misunderstood. The point that they tried to say is that our affirmation does not mean that we know the kun, the, or the haqiqa, the actual ontological reality, or the quintessential nature of these attributes, or the howness of these attributes. We do not. We acknowledge that we do not. Mm -hmm. Affirm the them as they have come to us. Uh, so we affirm the meaning. There is something that we will capture from the meaning. It is not only affirming the wording, because Imam al-Qadama can sometimes say that, that we're affirming the, the wording. But in many other places, when he talks about the speech of God, when he uh, basically, reports from Ibn Abdul Bar, uh, statements from Ibn Abdul Bar about the, the, the these be uh, the, these uh, attributes being hakika not majaz, so uh, true, not metaphoric. Uh, when, when he defends 
uh, his his uh, cousin Al Hafiz Abdul Ghani, uh, when when he defends uh, Abu Ismail Al Harawi, who was a very scripturalist, uh, extremely scripturalist uh, uh, scholar and uh, and a great uh, Sufi. Um, and when he talks, sometimes Imam Qadama talks about uh, our affirmation of things that are for certain known to us, for certain known to us, or at least their, their, their meanings are known to us like God's knowledge, like God's life. He would basically use the same terminology he would use for God's hand uh, and God's mercy, God, etc., he would use them for God's life and God's knowledge. Is he delegating the meaning of life and knowledge? Do we not understand anything from the words of God, the knowledge and you know the, the life of, of God? It is impossible because he would be more negationist than the Mu'tazila. Keep in mind that the Mu'tazila did not negate that God hears. This is we will come to this discussion later. They did not negate that God sees. Of course not. They would be crazy. The Mu'tazila were not crazy. The Mu'tazila were negating that God hears with a quality that's called hearing that's distinct from the ipsaity or the that of God. Uh, and, and we will discuss this and we will discuss why they said this. So it is impossible that Imam ibn Qudama was more negationist than uh, the Mu'tazila. Uh, but rather, some of the statements they said, to, 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 they said them to, with, in all honesty, to, to say that we are unable to comprehend the howness of God or the quintessential nature of God, but also there is pressure pressure from the people who are accusing them of assimilation, accusing them of corporealism and, and of all these things. So they wanted to push back against those accusations. Uh, so the, 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 the language they use can sometimes confuse us and can sometimes cause us to disagree over the intent of, uh, of what they used. But, but even, you know, the, the people who are uh, sort of the, ra the rationalist theology uh, a group, and certainly there are different people. There are people that are completely uh, non-hostile, completely um, sensible uh, and, and decent. Uh, but there are those people who basically want to divide and conquer and want to isolate Imam Ibn Taymiyyah so that mm. they assassinate him and then figure out what they will do with, with anyone else. Even those people cannot uh, exonerate uh, Imam ibn Qudama, and they do not exonerate Imam ibn Qudama from, from their accusations, despite the fact that some would want to say that he delegated the meanings to God. You know, his mm. entire legacy is, is not consistent with that. So if you look at this statement from him, if we say that Allah the Exalted has a hand and hearing and sight, then this is only an affirmation of attributes that Allah the Exalted has affirmed for himself. We do not say that the meaning of hand is power, nor the meaning that the meaning of hearing and sight is knowledge. We do not say that the, they are limbs, 
uh, nor do we liken them to hands, hearing, and sight, which are limbs and tools of action. We, mm. say, we say that their, their affirmation is only based on the textual evidence, and it is necessary to negate any resemblance to them. As Allah the Exalted says, there is nothing like unto him, and he is the all-hearing and all-seeing. And you will find that Imam Al-Qadama here is using the same standards, the same protocol of interpretation that he uses for hearing and vision with the hand of God. And he's certainly reporting this from uh, Imam Al-Khatib uh, approvingly. So th that is the gray area. They wanted to say that we are delegating this, 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 and that. So at the end of the day, some people will say, so what is it that you're affirming? Hmm. Um, and that will be the discussion of Al-Qadr al-Mustarak, or the shared measure, or uh, the common degree that Imam Ibn Taymiyyah will uh, basically explain and elaborate on in much detail. Uh, the Qadr al-Mushtarak, basically the shared measure, is that there is something that you capture from hearing. Everybody will capture this. There is the, the minimum that without which you cannot describe the person as having hearing. Recognition of sounds is the Qadr al-Mushtarak when it comes to hearing. It's easy for hearing. It may be more difficult with others, but it is easier for hearing. Hearing is the recognition of sounds. That is the shared measure. This will apply to God and to the creatures. Recognition of sounds certainly would apply differently. And, you know, because there are certain things about God that, that uh, make his attributes different in every way uh, from the, the creatures. But you, you have to affirm that God recognizes sounds if he described himself as hearing. Now, there is something called the distinct measure, which separates God from the creations. And that, you know, uh, we may discuss later. So hearing for us is what? Sound waves traveling through, through your ear canal, uh, making your drum vibrate, the ossicles transmit the vibrations into the inner ear and onto the brain to basically interpret those vibrations. Does that apply to God? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But the, the shared measure that would apply to both God and creation is recognition of sounds. And it will apply also differently, but the difference will not be in the essence of that definition but you add certain, you add divine attributes of perfection, of absoluteness, of eternity, of indestructibility to God, and then every attribute will be colored by those realities, by those divine realities. Okay. So, how could they disagree? So there are statements that came from the predecessors uh, that that uh, made them um, uh, that, that were basically understood differently. 
by uh, the different schools. So we have two uh, basically very important statements. Uh, one of them comes from Imam Malik. It does come from others, but it, it famously is reported from Imam Malik, which is God's rising on the throne is not unknown, but the howness or modality of it is not apprehensible, is not apprehensible. And then you have statements from others like Al-Awza'i and Al-Thawri and Malik himself and Al-Layth ibn Sa'd where they said about the, the, the verses and the hadith of the attributes, pass them on as they have come without howness or modality. Um, some would say tafsiruha qara'atuha. Its, its interpretation is its recitation uh, without modality. Some would add without modality or resemblance. Some would add without explanation. And that, based on other statements of them, would mean explanation other than the obvious or explanation beyond the primary uh, uh, meaning that, that is mentioned. So uh, here, how did they disagree over these statements, the interpretation of these statements? Hmm. So the rationalist theologians will say that when he said God's istiwa, of course, they will not translate it. Rationalist theologians would not translate it istiwa to rising on the throne. That is my translation as a scripturalist. So they would say that his statement in istiwa uh, is, is not unknown means that the mention of the istiwa in the Qur'an is not unknown. So scripturists will say, the man who came and asked him recited the verse, so there is, there is no point, and everybody knows that istiwa is mentioned in the Qur'an, and again, the Qur'an does not mention istiwa, that derivation is not mentioned in the Qur'an. The Qur'an mentions istawa, which is the, the verb in the past tense, not the verbal noun istiwa. So the fact that he basically understood something from the verb and turned it into verbal noun means that he understood something from the, the word. And he was not simply saying that it's not unknown, that it's not unknown, the mention of it in the Quran, it's the meaning of it is not unknown. Why are you asking about it? The meaning of it is not unknown. How does Allah make istiwa is not known to us, and that's where we stop. The same would uh, apply to pass them on as, the, as they have come, without howness. Uh, they would say that pass them on as they have come, meaning delegate their meaning. And the authorities will say, of course not. That would not be pass them, passing them on as they have come. That would be passing them on without their meaning. Uh, and then they would disagree over what kayfaya means, what kayf means. And the rationalist theologians try to transfuse definitions of kayfaya that are philosophical definitions that are not known to the Arabs or are not part of the uh, linguistic conventions of the first audience. So anyway, so Imam Taymiyyah now, uh, he, everybody agreed that the Salaf were not doing reinterpretation uh, and, and that was not a common practice, at least, of the Salaf. So 
his uh, he, he needs now to prove that the Salaf did not delegate the meanings to God, and they do did affirm the meanings and delegated only the ontological reality. So he would use reports in which the Salaf provided an explanation. He would use reports to show that they understood the meaning. He would use reports where they use derivations and tenses other than what is revealed. He would use reports where they explain the howness uh, and they would say that the howness is only known to God. So affirm that there is a meaning, but the howness of that meaning is only known to God. And keep in mind that he was not the only one to refute delegationism. The wheel scholars, so now it, it seems that within the rationalist theology uh, uh, group or orientation, uh, there, there is like there is this concept of wheel is fine, delegationism, delegationism is fine. That's basically uh, <laughs> it's basically coming together to 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 uh, push back against the uh, scripturalist. Uh, theology or the spread of scripturalist uh, theology. But that was not true historically at all times, and at least was not true for all imams. Uh, there were uh, imams that upheld reinterpretation ta'wil and had extreme harsh criticism of delegationism. Uh, because delegationism amounts to saying that the Quran is not clear that we were not meant to comprehend it. Mm. That's, and that's what Imam Ibn Taymiyyah uses. Uh, so he basically addresses these texts from a textualist standpoint. And he says that the statements of Rabia and Malik is not unknown, are in agreement with words like, let them pass them as they have come. These statements are in agreement. They simply meant that the howness of the attribute cannot be known, but they did not deny the reality of the attribute itself. He says, if the scholars had only believed in the wording without understanding the meaning in a way that is appropriate to Allah, they would not say the istiwa is not unknown and the howness cannot be comprehended. In that case, istiwa would be unknown, uh, like this disjointed letters disjointed letters. And certainly God would not use disjointed letters in the middle of his speech. And he basically separates between the disjointed letters at the beginning of the surahs, because those are letters, not words. And you are not basically asked to understand the letters. Uh, the, 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 there is a wisdom in their mention at the beginning of the surahs, according to the stronger position there is a known wisdom for their mention at the beginning of the surahs. But mm -hmm. God, God would not intersperse his speech with disjointed letters. Furthermore, he says, there would be no need to deny comprehension of the howness of the attribute if they did not understand any meaning from the word. So if you say that if you mean that istiwa is not known, you do not need to say the howness of the istiwa is not apprehensible. The howness of what? If you're denying the very meaning, why are you needing to deny the howness or the kaifiyah or the modality or the ontological reality? 
Then he says, in addition, they're saying, let them pass them as they have come, implies acceptance of the apparent meaning. Uh, if their signification is needed, then they should have said, let these words pass whilst, whilst believing that what they indicate is not intended. Uh, in that case, it would, be, it would not be allowed to pass as they have come. They are passing with cautionary remarks you know, warnings, and he believes that the prophet would have been the keenest, basically, to give those warnings, and he didn't. Apparently, as Imam Taftazani said, the Quran and Sunnah are completely devoid of any negation of the meanings of these attributes. So this is a textualist response. His rational response would be, and certainly, this rational response comes in a different book, or averting a conflict between reason and revelation. He says, regarding delegation, it is well known that Allah, may he be exalted, has commanded us to reflect upon and understand the Quran. Therefore, how is it possible that we are expected to turn away from comprehending it and knowing it? Furthermore, the address in the Qur'an is intended to guide us, clarify all things to us, and bring us out of darkness into light. So how can the apparent meanings of some parts of, the, of, of it be considered false or lead to disbelief? Because, you know, during his time, people who confirmed the aboveness of God were considered by many rational theologians, including his chief interlocutor, Imam Razi, who died you know, in 606, that's about 60, close to 60 years before his birth, we're considering the, the people who uh, believed in spatialism or aboveness uh, disbelievers. So how is it that we are not expected, he says, to understand the exterior meanings or the interior ones? So here he is saying the delegationists are refusing to reinterpret, but they are also uh, refusing to affirm. So they are saying that these words, nothing can be understood from them, neither the external meaning nor the uh, internal one, or the primary and secondary meanings. Nothing can be understood from them. Uh, he says that if this is true, then we have not been addressed by the clear truth. Uh, anyway, so he, he carries on to basically refute this on rational basis. Okay, so th this is the this is the beginning. You know the you know the Quran was revealed, the Sunnah was revealed. They basically depict a different picture of God, very different from the Aristotelian notion of God, or the philosophical notion of God that was prevalent in their times. Very different. The righteous predecessors did not involve themselves in reinterpreting the, them by, by agreement of everyone. Now, what the Salaf did, whether they delegated the meaning or delegated the, the ontological reality to, to God, is a point of contention between scripturalist theologians and rationalist uh, theologians. And we have basically tried to cover part of that uh, discourse. Um, so what happened next is that the empire of faith, uh, Muslim empire, I guess, uh, uh, um, became 
the sort of the largest of, of its time and the greatest in terms of diversity, diversity, diversity of people from different ethnicities, different theological backgrounds, different philosophical backgrounds. You had Hindus and Buddhists, you had Christians and Jews, you had uh, philosophers, you had pagans, you had everybody under this uh, sort of empire of faith that was uh, Muslim, um, you know, uh, predominantly. So uh, Muslims then encountered various theistic and philosophical beliefs, which challenged their understanding of the divine attributes in the Quran. Negative theology in Islam is said to have started with Al-Jad ibn Dirham. So this was at the basically the turn of the first uh, century, the second century, uh, so the beginning of the second century after the Hijrah of the Prophet Al-Jad ibn Dirham is thought to be the one uh, who first introduced uh, negative theology, the first Muslim to introduce negative theology in Islam. His student, Al-Jahm ibn Safwan, uh, was the main propagator of, of, the, um, of this uh, theology. That is why the title Jahmi is being sometimes used fairly and unfairly, honestly, against all negationists. Um, so uh, they lived during the reign of the Umayyad Caliph Marwan II in the beginning of the second century. And the roots of negative theology and Islam, you know, researchers, uh, that's researchers also from uh, Western, Western academia, uh, this is a, a point of contention, a point of controversy. Uh, certainly negative people who espouse negative theology, they will say that this is, you know, completely Islamic, genuinely Islamic. Uh, but most of the researchers are identifying the roots to be Neoplatonic, Buddhist, or Christian patristic. I think uh, there's a lot, I mean, I think you, you could say that the Christian patristic tradition is quite heavily Neoplatonic anyway, thinking of someone like Augustine and so on. So you could even boil it down to just two, the Christian slash Neoplatonic tradition or the Buddhist tradition. Um, but yeah, I, I, I certainly, it's very clearly there in the Christian tradition as well, for sure. Yeah. So uh, the, the God of Aristotle, the unmoved mover, believed to be changeless and not instigating any new action or influence on the world. Uh, this con conception of God influenced a lot of early Muslims to basically develop a static concept of God. Um, honestly speaking, you know, uh, it, it, their motivations were not always bad. Uh, you know, and, and certainly uh, uh, he's um, Dirham and Jam Safwan are objects of much hate by a lot of Muslims, <laughs> but their motivations may have not been bad. Uh, what they have done uh, is bad to me, for sure, but their motivations, you know, they, they were concerned about sort of the concept of hypostasis in God, or they were concerned about the concept of, uh, when they first uh, came up with uh, this conception of, or notion of the Quran being created, uh, Christians were telling them, if, if Jesus is if the word of God and the Quran is the word of God and the Quran is not created, then why is Jesus or the Quran is divine? 
why mm -hmm. is Jesus not divine? So th they have these concerns, which Imam Temea will uh, take on, you know, but 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 the, their motivations may have not been uh, always. They may, their motivations may have been good, but anyway, the Mu'tazila, um, they are not like the Jahmis, the earlier Jahmis. The Mu'tazila are the most sort of rationalist theologians in our tradition. Um, as Muslim apologists, uh, they also struggle to merge the concept of Tawheed with Aristotelian notion of the simple, undifferentiated God. Yeah. Um, to avoid any hypothesis and composition in his essence, uh, they denied the attributes as ontologically distinct realities. The Mu'tazila did not say God does not hear. They said that God does not have an attribute, a quality called hearing that's distinct from his ipsaity or his that. Mm -hmm. uh, so Muslim traditionalists reacted by condemnation of all these uh, developments. So now you have the Mu'tazila and, and Sunni Muslims, but uh, later on, um, a, a certain strand of Sunni Islam wanted to have, to, to basically take a, sort of a middle position or wanted basically to defend the Sunnism using uh, Kalam uh, methodology. So Sunni Muslim apologists, uh, such as Imam Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari, rahimahullah, in his last phase, because he has he had three phases, recognized by Ibn Taymiyyah, and Ibn Taymiyyah is completely happy with the last phase, completely happy with the last phase. They responded to the denial of divine attributes by affirming the scriptural attributes of the divine absaities, such as the face and hands and Allah's aboveness, of course, while denying jismiyyah. Jismiyyah is... The, the Arabic word for corporealism. But we will come later to talk about terminological shifts and what the word, uh, what meanings other than the, uh, the, the implications in the Arabic language were transfused into the word. Mm. Um, so the, the, the Muslim apologists, they affirmed the attributes, but they had an issue with the volitional attributes, the voluntary attributes, God's actions. Uh, so they wanted to avoid the concept of supervening of new events in the divine absaity, which to them would be offensive to his eternity. As their argument, the Kalam cosmological argument, we would come to, to show that their argument depended on Hudus uh, al-Arad, which is the temporal origination of accidents. So if I am using this argument to prove that the world is temporal, then I cannot subscribe temporal origination of accidents to God or supervening of new events in God. Uh, however, later Mutakallimun, you know, um, so, so the, the, the earlier Mutakallimun, they only had an issue with the voluntary volitional attributes. Later Mutakallimun diverged for the, from the earlier rationalist theologians and denied many other attributes. Uh, these developments led to a reaction. Some of, the, some of it was moderate and reasonable. 
and some of it was excessive. The reaction came mainly from different groups that are extinct now, like Karameya and others. Uh, but of the groups that are still existent, Ahl al-Hadith and al-Hanabila are the people who had the severest reaction to these developments. Um, so, so talking about the motivations now, and sometimes Ahl al-Hadith and al-Hanabila, the, the, their, their reaction was excessive. And mm. Imam Taymiyyah himself acknowledges that some of the Hanabila and Ahl al-Hadith, they were excessive in isbat, in affirmation. Mm. You know, coming close to assimilation uh, and coming close to ascribing things to God that the revelation does not clearly uh, ascribe to him. Um, so anyway, so the, and particularly the use of weak hadith in this regard uh, is absolutely unacceptable because, you know, uh, you, you can't even use weak hadith to establish a, a new ruling. How could you use a weak hadith to establish something about God? So anyway, the 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 the, the point uh, that I wanted to, to stress here is the point of motivation, the motivation of the Mu'tazila, the motivation of the rational theologians uh, has been the defense of uh, Islamic uh, creeds. Uh, some of them may, may have been bad, if, maybe, yeah, of course, but it does not seem that this basically would apply to the majority, uh, even of the Mu'tazila, who uh, used, used the Kalam, uh, cosmological argument to prove the existence of God. Uh, so, uh, Professor William Lane Craig, mm. who is the, uh, a well-known defender, or basically the most uh, well-known defender of the Kalam cosmological argument, mm. uh, uh, in in the West. In the West, yeah. Yeah, formulates it in this way. Whatever begins to exist has a cause of its existence. Uh, the universe began to exist, and therefore the universe has a cause of its existence. But, you know, it's, uh, it's basically a classical syllogism. So before recent scientific developments, uh, you know, particularly second law of thermodynamics, uh, and to some extent, the Big Bang, proponents of the argument had to defend the second premise on philosophical grounds. Uh, because the philosophers have believed in the eternity of the world, uh, that it does not have a beginning. So how is it that we're going to prove, <laughs> you know, the second premise? They, they come up with so many different uh, arguments uh, for the second premise. One of them is uh, composition, that bodies are composed. They need a composer. Uh, one of them is the, the argument of ikhtisas, which, which means that, you know, these bodies have specific qualities, and that they believed that, that everything came from one element, al-jawhar al-fard. You know, philosophers believe, believe that there was the individual atom and bodies were composed of individual atoms, but you added certain qualities to them, uh, which some of them believe to have uh, basically to subsist in a realm uh, outside the, the bodies, and some of them believe that they subsist only in the sensibles. 
But in order for you to add those qualities so that we have distinct uh, particulars out there that are different from each other, in order for you to add qualities to al-jawhar al-fard or the primordial substance in that composition, you will specify one particular with, with certain qualities and another particular with other qualities. There must be a specifier, a mukhassis, uh, and that must be God. But the main argument, you know, keep in mind that these are weaker arguments to, in, the, in the rational theology tradition. Um, the composition is accepted by the Mu'tazila, the composition is not accepted by uh, the rationalist theologians like Ash'aris and Maturidis. But the main argument that is accepted by all is the origination of accidents. Origination of accidents. So, and, and they don't talk about all accidents because, you know, sometimes there are accidents that would be difficult to use here. But let's talk about motion and, and stillness. One thing is either, you know, and certainly in, in, in the same respect is either motionless or still. So the movement and stillness alternate. So this mouse, for instance, was uh, on the desk still, and then I moved it. Hmm. Uh, so before this movement, it was still, and then it moved. Movement, movement, movement and stillness alternate. And if they alternate, then at one point, they become non-existent. You know, it's either moving or still. So movement now is non-existent in this particular object. And because it is non-existent, it, it can't be eternal because eternity and non-existence are contradictions. So it can't be eternal. And since this object can only, so, so movement and stillness, they cannot be eternal. Neither one of them can be eternal. And since this object can either be moving or still, this object cannot be eternal. This mountain cannot be eternal. Any body cannot be eternal because it will have to be, it will have to have one of those two qualities. And if both qualities had a beginning, the object had a beginning. So that, is, that helps us prove the origination of bodies. Now, keep in mind that even among the Kalam theologians, I think Imam Razi himself, uh, thinks that this argument is not particularly that strong. Because if they will alternate for eternity in the future, they can alternate for eternity in the past. But most of the Kalam theologians will not consider this uh, consider this argument to be very strong. Mm. But do we need do we need to prove do we need this particular argument to prove the second premise? There are better arguments, and that is what Imam Taymiyyah points to. There are better arguments. Mm. For instance, in Imam Al Ghazali's argument that temporal causes, that temporal phenomena in our experience, are caused by temporal phenomena. And infinite regression is impossible because infinite regression means that there would not be any existence at any time. 
because if, if you know we keep going back to to start the the the, the cycle or to to start the whole series, we have to go back infinitely, so there would not be any existence at any time. So temporal causes are caused by temporal causes. There has to be a first uncaused cause. Otherwise, we fall into an infinite, infinite regression, and infinite regression precludes, you know, the ex ex any existence at any time. That's a stronger argument than the origination of accidents. Uh, Imam al-Ghazali also pointed some absurdities in, in, the, in the concept of actual infinities. So he said, for instance, that if the world is eternal and you had two planets rotating at different rates, rotating at different rates, I can't coordinate this to show like, anyway, but one of them is slower than the other. Uh, so they would have completed, one of them would have completed, if, if one of them is rotating at half the speed of the other, one of them would have had, would have completed double the number of rotations than the other, but both would have rotated an infinite number of rotations, and that's absurd. And uh, certainly it would be absurd and not necessarily, because some people proved that it would be even absurd according to the B theory of time, which claims that all times exist tenselessly uh, at, at the same at the same point, you know, that the dimension of time is all there and existent, and all times are present existently. It's it's counterintuitive, so we're not gonna discuss this, but but even in the B theory of time, some people can prove that this is still absurd. Uh, so the, 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 the reason why we're spending time here is that this Kalam cosmological argument, this Kalam cosmological argument was considered to be the strongest rational argument on the existence of God by the rationalist theologians. Hmm. Therefore, anything that comes in the way of the Kalam cosmological argument and the arguments that are needed to prove the second premise in the Kalam cosmological argument, we have to do away with anything that comes in its way. Hmm. Uh, because it would be counter to sort of logical certainties. So now, it created a lot of disputes. The Quran cosmological argument created a lot of disputes within, uh, within the tradition. So even before Imam Taymiyyah, we have statements like Imam Abu Hanifa, for instance, and this uh, uh, was reported in Al-Hujjah fi Bayan Al-Mahajjah from Imam Abu Hanifa, Nuh Al-Jama said to him, uh, Imam Abu Hanifa radiallahu anhu, he asked him about the opinions people innovated, people innovated regarding kalam, accidents, and bodies. That's the Kalam cosmological argument. He replied, these are the views of the philosophers. You should hold fast to the verses of the Quran and the ways of the predecessors. And beware of every innovation, for it is bid'ah. Imam al-Hassan al-Sha'ari initially accepted the Kalam cosmological argument. He may have continued to accept it because uh, the second book that is mentioned here, 
Risala ila ahl al-Sagr, epistle to the people of the frontier. Um, it's, it's controversial whether it's by him or by his student, Ibn Mujahid al-Basri. I'm not going to get into this controversy. But if it is his, then he, he later um, rejected uh, all the arguments of the Karam, not, not all of them, some of the arguments of the Karam cosmological argument. Okay, so what is Imam Taymiyyah saying now on the proof of the origination of bodies? Because the, the, this is extremely important, but at the same time, this meant many things. It meant that God cannot be composed, which meant to the Mu'tazila that he can't have any qualities. He has to be basit, undifferentiated, simple, as Aristotle said. He cannot have any qualities aside from his that, his ipsaity. Uh, because anything that is composed will need a composer. Now, it meant that God does not do any new actions you know, that that nothing new can subsist in him. Actions uh, cannot, new actions cannot subsist in him, which is at least contra uh, 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 contradicting the apparent meanings of the Qur'an, at least the apparent meanings of, of the Qur'an. So Imam Ibn Taymiyyah said, this is a good argument. This is a good argument. Kalam cosmological argument is a good argument. That, you know, the major, minor premises and conclusion, this syllogism is good, is a good argument. But basically to prove the second premise through this uh, origination of accidents and origination of bodies is futile and it's like reaching your ear uh, like this. So it's, it's, it's futile. The simple cosmological argument of the Quran is, 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 is superior. The Quran gives us the, both uh, arguments, the cosmological argument and the contingency argument in a simple way. So, or were they created by nothing? Or were they the creators of themselves? And then the contingency argument, the samadhiya of God, self-sufficient. When they asked the Prophet ﷺ to describe his God, he said, Allah revealed, say Allah is one and unique. Ahad. Uh, Allahu Samad, self-sufficient, you know, that is the contingency argument. He does not beget nor is he begotten. It's not only limited to, it's not only answering Christians, it's answering anyone who says, uh, uh, who speaks of the infinite uh, regression of causes. Uh, he's, he, he does not have uh, uh, roots or branches. Uh, and no, and no one is like unto him. So uh, the, the Quran is pointing to the origination of things in our own empirical experience. And that is what Imam Tamiyah wants to, to say. This movement of my hand is enough for him to prove the existence of God because 
this movement of my hand is new and 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 it is caused by a temporal cause but the temporal cause temporal causes cannot go infinitely uh backward because that would mean non-existence of anything mm. infinite regress yeah infinite regress and then we have the contingency argument which he also approves of but the contingency argument was used by the philosophers to prove the necessary being only but the philosophers you know were not concerned about the creation because for the philosophers and when we talk about when we say the philosophers we're talking about Ibn Sina particularly that's what they mean when they you know the philosophers of Islam you know Ibn Sina and, and Farabi and, and Ibn Rushd and, and so on but but they were mainly focusing on Ibn Sina whether it is Imam Ghazali or Imam Taymiyyah or everybody so when they talk about the philosopher because really in terms of his impact on the, this discourse, he had the greatest impact. Uh, but there were Muslim philosophers before him and there are Muslim philosophers after him, but Ibn Sina was a watershed figure in this regard. So the philosophers are not concerned about the beginning of creation because the, begin, the creation did not have a beginning, but they are concerned about contingency. So that they believe that all of, the, all of this is contingent. There has to be a necessary being for, uh, for there to be any contingent existence. So he approves of this and he says, but it, it falls short of proving what we ought to prove, that God created the universe and God is deserving of worship. Uh, so, so Imam Taymiyyah says that the external signs are countless. Um, and, and then he, he talks about, you know, things that would be called now intelligent design, fine tuning, all of that. He considers all of these are as external signs and he says that they are countless because God is so great that the proofs on his existence must be, must be also countless. Uh, People criticize him for focusing on Tawheed al-Uluhiyya, God deserving of, of worship, and neglecting Tawheed al-Rububiyya, uh, God's lordship, neglecting to prove Tawheed al-Rububiyya. They say, well, you know, he condemns the people who are, who are actually doing the work to, uh, to prove God's existence, to talk to the philosophers, to respond to the atheists, to respond to the philosophers. But this is not true. You know, keep in mind that during his time, atheism was not that big. Mm. Uh, you know, most most people, whether they are philosophers, whether they are, you know, religionists, etc., believed in God. You know, it, it was completely, extremely rare uh, to come by a true, true atheist. And some people think you never come by a true, true atheist. But anyway. Uh, but he wrote this book that I'm, sh I'm showing the picture of the book here on the origination of the world. And he had many arguments uh, uh, for the origination of the, of the world. But he says that the simple argument of the Quran that uses the, the, the observable origination of things in, uh, in front of us is superior to the lengthy argument, uh, arguments of the Kalam cosmological argument and that the corrupted fitra, 
the natural disposition, original disposition, inclination, intuition of humanity, if it is corrupted, uh, no matter how uh, complicated you make the argument or um, lengthy you make the argument, it is not going to work. Uh, these people will need to go back and rehabilitate their fitra uh, to be able to see the observable, uh, the daruri, the necessary, uh, that, that that's out there. Um, finally, he says, if you use the Kalam cosmological argument, if you use all of those arguments, they may not be generalized to God because they are not founded in mental axioms that apply to the unseen like the seen. We will, when we talk about his epistemology, we will talk about uh, his, the, the role of reason for him. And he believes that reason does cross over from the seen to the unseen. But there are certain parts, certain sort of arguments uh, or principles of reason that cross over. Those are the mental axioms without which you cannot, basically, you will turn into a sophist and you will not understand anything. His alternative, he, his, his alternative for the establishment of the existence of God and the Lordship of God is three parts. One of them focuses on the fitra. That uh, this is basically like in, in Plantinga's uh, terminology would be natural faith. Mm. Uh, he would say that people who don't believe in God, they have a problem with their faith-making mechanisms. There is a sort of an internal, uh, you know, uh, defect. So, so the fitra for him is, is extremely important because the recognition of God is fitri. He says here, and this is his statement here, then the origin of this position of fitra recognizes the creator without these signs, for it has been created upon that. But if it did not recognize him without them, it would not know that these signs point to him. For the fact that they are his signs and an indication of him is like the fact that a name indicates the named object, the referent. Uh, the, the, the expression refers to a referent through reference. You have to conceptualize the referent in order for the name to mean anything to you. Thus, the named object must have been conceived of before, and it must have been known that this is a name for it, the conception of God. You know, so you see the, the uh, perfection the fine-tuning, the intelligent design. If you don't have the conception of God, if it is not built into you, you would not recognize that these signs point to him. So you have to conceptualize God, and that conceptualization is hardwired inside us or built inside us. Anyway, and the fitra also, your disposition, which to him is spiritual, cognitive, moral disposition. Hmm. It's it's spiritual, cognitive, moral disposition. That's the fitra. That's the genuine human nature is is meant to be good. So he has a very optimistic view 
of human nature or human disposition, spiritually, morally, cognitively, we are designed, built to, you know, arrive at the right conclusions, spiritually, morally, cognitively. So, so the fitra is, is, is central to his uh, sort of uh, plan. Mm. And then he says that the external signs are countless and they must be countless because they are referring to God. So he would use all, all of the things that we're using now. All of this is pointing to God. He's trying to undermine the importance of the Kalam cosmological argument. He's trying to undermine the importance of the arguments that prove the second premise in the Kalam cosmological argument. Not mm. the Kalam cosmological argument itself, but the, the, the arguments that the rationalist theologians came up with to prove the second premise, which is the origination of bodies through the origination of accidents or composition or ikhtisas or whatever it is. He believes temporal, you know, temporal phenomena uh, going backwards f for infinity is impossible. That's infinite regress. We're done. Hadooth, any origination in front of our eyes means that there is a first cause. So uh, then he also places a lot of emphasis on the messengers and the mm. messages. Uh, he says these are real people who came with real miracles, who pointed to God, and nations believed in them, transmitted their miracles, transmitted their teachings, this did not, this was not done in vain. They are part of the, you know, any proof on the existence of God, the messengers, messengership, prophethood is part of this. So this is his alternative plan, not to replace the Quran cosmological argument, but to undermine the importance of certain arguments uh, on the second premise because he and many others believed that these arguments, when they applied them to God, they created uh, a lot of disruption within our hermeneutical system that he believed must stay closed. It already accounted for reason enough and must stay closed. Okay, so the typology of the different positions regarding uh, uh, the divine attributes, if, if you go from the left to the right, the left would be the extreme negationists, the right would be the extreme affirmationists, uh, far, far right and far left. So absolute negationists, uh, absolute negationists would be um, what we call Jahmeya, but more than Jahmeya, uh, philosophers and esoteric uh, interpreters. Um, such as such as the Ismaili tradition, for instance. So the absolute negationists would say that God is not existent and not not existent. Mm -hmm. uh, why are they saying not existent and not not existent? Because they say that Jahmeya, who are negationists, are saying that he's not existent then you likened him to non-existence. 
and that is tashbih, assimilation. We will not like him to non-existent, uh, non-existence. Uh, so we will say he's not existent and not not existent. So Imam Taymiyyah said, what you're doing is that you're likening God to mustahilat, impossible thing, you know, the imp impossible. You're making God a contradiction. Because non-existent, non-existent non, non, non is a mustahil, impossible, it's a contradiction. And then you have the relative negations, which are Mu'tazila. Mu'tazila affirmed the names of God without attributes. So they, they, they would affirm the names, but the names don't have attributes attached to them, because if you say attributes and qualities, you fall into composition in their understanding. So there is not only the basit or the simple undifferentiated ipsity of God, but there are also qualities uh, that God is in need for and is composed of, therefore he needs a composer and all of that. And certainly Imam Taymiyyah has many answers to this uh, and, and that we may discuss later. So then you have the relative affirmationists. The relative affirmations would say, you know, the relative affirmations would be the, the, the later mutakallimun, the later rationalist theologians, uh, who affirmed certain attributes, um, uh, to, to God. And there are not only seven, but they affirmed certain attributes to God. Uh, the, you know, existence, for instance, is, uh, is affirmed to God, knowledge and, uh, and life and, um, uh, power, uh, will, uh, hearing, uh, vision, uh, speaking. They, they affirmed the, these attributes to God, but they denied uh, many others. Then you have predominantly affirmationists. That is the earlier mutakallimun. That is Imam Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari in his uh, basically last phase. And that is also the earlier Ash'aris. And then you have affirmationists, uh, which, you know, uh, would be considered because keep in mind, I am, I am, I am Hanbali. So that's my, that's what I believe. Uh, at least. So affirmationists would be Hanbalis like Imam Taymiyyah who affirm, you know, use that equation, affirmation without assimilation, exoneration without negation. You have extreme affirmationists, which are the Karamis. Uh, they are extinct now, but they were basically uh, quite popular at certain times. And during the time of Imam Razi himself, uh, his, his main contention was with Karamis and people that basically had the greatest animosity with Imam Razi were, uh, were uh, Karamis. Uh, and then you have assimilationists. Uh, uh, so some people say that, you know, Hisham ibn al-Hakam uh, and Abban ibn Sam'an, and some people are, are called uh, assimilationists because they were extreme, extreme affirmationists to the point of assimilation, likening God to, uh, to man. Uh, and these certainly are very um, sort of unimportant, and people are actually dispute whether they ever said that or not, but they're they're not really prominent uh, people in in our tradition at all. Hisham ibn al-Hakam was 
what 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 we, uh, Sunnis would call Rafidi. He was like uh, from uh, the Shia who rejected Abu Bakr and Omar. Um, why do I have this line in the middle here? Because this is a very significant line, uh, a very significant line. Is God perceptible by the eye in the hereafter or not? Can we see God in the hereafter or not? And this line separates between the people uh, to your left uh, who deny that God can be perceived, uh, can be seen in the hereafter, and those to your right who say that God uh, will be seen by our eyes in the hereafter. Uh, so now, the turning of the tide, turning of the tide. When we spoke earlier about the Imam al-Ghazali, he was born in 450 after Hijrah, died in 505 after Hijrah. Uh, there was a, a certain prime minister, you, you, maybe you call him prime minister or something, like uh, Nizam al-Mulk, uh, or, or, or a sultan under the, the, the Khalifa. Uh, his, his name was, was Nizam al-Mulk, and Nizam al-Mulk uh, had uh, great respect for Imam al-Ghazali, who deserved the respect for sure, and made him basically the principle of, you know, what would be later a franchise of schools uh, throughout the Muslim territories. And Imam al-Ghazali was the one uh, through these schools to make uh, basically kalam or to make rationalist theology um, went over most of uh, the scholars. Um, the, the masses did not particularly subscribe to or the public, I should say, maybe masses is not uh, the right word. Uh, the public did not necessarily subscribe to the, to any particular school, uh, but many scholars did, uh, and they became the decisive majority, even though they did not necessarily uh, fully subscribe, wholeheartedly subscribe to the Kalam methodology. Like the people who accepted the conclusions uh, of Kalam, the outcome of Kalam, were, were averse to Kalam, even among the people who accepted the, the conclusions of Kalam, were, were averse to Kalam. And it was a certain, like, you know, a limited number of people who were engaged in uh, rational uh, theology. So Imam Razi, who died in 606 after Hijra, was the chief interlocutor of Imam Taymiyyah, uh, died 60 years before him, before he was born, all, almost 60 years, but he was his chief interlocutor, transgeneration, because the ideas of Imam Razi were the chief interlocutor uh, in his books. Uh, he, uh, Imam Razi made the fear of the spatialists and corporealists uh, at the end of his book, uh, Asas al-Takdis, during the, you know, the discussions, he was talking about Karamites and Hanbalites uh, being the ones who subscribe to those views. 
corporealists here did not mean corporealists here did not mean uh, people who say that God has a body or God is a body. Corporealists here means that people who say things uh, that corporealism is a necessary concomitant of or lazim of or a necessary concomitant of uh, those uh, beliefs. So I, I just wanted to say that to, to basically make you uh, familiar with this, the scene and in intellectual milieu uh, that Imam Taymiyyah came into. Uh, and uh, the, this particular takfir, Imam Taymiyyah acknowledges that Hanbalis also committed takfir. He says that one of the bid'ah that Hanbalis and Ahl al-Hadith uh, had fallen into is excessive takfir. So this was not limited to rational, rationalist theologians. This was basically uh, a, a mutual sort of animosity and hostility taking place between rational theology and scriptural uh, theology. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.